VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, December the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. So this is the final week of shows for Open Line as we head into the Christmas holidays. Obviously, this week there's going to be a lot of hustle and bustle and spending and frustration and angst and whatever emotion is is waved over you. So take your time. Get where you're going. Matt, congratulations and thanks a lot to everyone who supported VOCM Cares. When we left the the, uh, station on Friday, I think the 50 was somewhere around $30,000 or $40,000. And now when the sales closed, $155,479. So that's huge for VOCM Cares and the good work that they do check in on the Growlers their final road trip of the calendar year they lost their final game in Adirondack but bounced back with a 3-1 victory over Maine last night in Portland you know people I think maybe underestimate the caliber of the talent in the ECHL since the the, uh, ECHL has been in action there's been 744 former ECHL players who have advanced to the National Hockey League four made their debut this year there's uh, one fellow who played for the Growlers some while back his name is Bobby McCann he scored his first NHL goal last night and congratulations to Owen Shepard. I don't know if you know who Owen is. He was born in St. John's, and as a toddler of the move to Alberta, moved back to this province when in his teens, came into St. John's eventually from Grand Lapierre to play some soccer uh, various clubs and provincial teams. Right now playing at the University of Cape Breton. He scored more goals than any other player in the Atlantic University sport, nine goals in 11 matches, scored three more goals, earning tournament MVP on the way to a national championship. And uh, over the weekend, he was selected first overall by the Valor FC on Thursday, pardon me, on Thursday in the Canadian Premier League's U Sports Draft. So there's eight CPL teams. It's the only professional t- uh, uh, soccer uh, league here in this province. And Owen Shepard, originally from here, Alberta, back to the province. First overall, congratulations to him. And a couple of quick soccer notes before we keep going. So the Ballon d'Or is for to recognize the best soccer player in Europe. And it was uh, first pr- uh, presented in 1956 to Blackpool and England winger Stanley Matthews. And also on this date last year at the FIFA World Cup final in Qatar, Maybe the finest soccer match I've ever seen. Quite possibly the best sporting event I have ever seen across all of the disciplines. So Argentina, of course, beat France in a penalty shootout. They were locked at three after extra time. Messi had two for Argentina. Kylian Mbappe, the French superstar, had a hat trick for France. And Messi gets his World Cup and was on this date in 2022. A couple of Christmas-related notes. So in 1892, the Nutcracker, of course, that's Tchaikovsky's ballet, premiered in St. Petersburg, Russia. Not a big hit at the time, but now it endorsed this very day. So that's part of the Christmas celebrations for many ballet companies. And also premiere on the uh, television in eight, uh, pardon me, 1966, Dr. Seuss's How, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So there you go. All right, a bit tongue-tied here. Let's keep going. So we were told last week that Newfoundland Power had a concern about the potential for rolling blackouts throughout the course of the winter. Okay. Talking about the fact that one of the units was down at Holyrood, then problems in Steveville, gas turbine out of service until at least February, the unreliability of Muskrat Falls. And at that time, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro said they've got the capacity, nothing to worry about. They're prepared for the winter. 
I think they feel the same way now, but now we find out that two out of the three turbines at Holyrood are down and out of commission. You know, Unit 2, 490 megawatts at Holyrood Thermal Generating Station. That's firm output. So the only one that's still in action is only operating at, what, uh, 70 megawatts. So we have got a potential issue. We're not trying to raise any red flags unnecessarily, but there's certainly an issue regarding Holyrood. And all the money we're spending to keep that old black smoke, black smoke pure facility open and operating so now there's yet another issue for Newfoundland Labrador Hydro inside of all of that you know I still do think we've got a really confusing tangly situation regarding hydro's forecast to need to double capacity by 2050 and all the evaluations they're doing and then talking about all the additional power going to be available from some of the wind proposals wind to hydrogen to ammonia you know notably world energy and everwind they're talking about having enormous amount of power to be able to sell back to the grid. So now with all of the issues regarding Stephenville and Muskrat Falls, which is indeed clear to transmit some 700 megawatts, not the 900 tests that's still in the offing, but one more unit at Hollywood down for repairs. You want to take that on? And, you know, in addition to that, it's not just the onshore wind, because now we know there's moves towards a regulatory regime and a royalty regime to see the province be the primary benefactor and the regulator of offshore wind. There's a piece of federal legislation that has to be passed before that comes to pa- before it becomes a reality. So all of these complications with integration with the, our own grid and some of the reliability issues that may indeed be present today. Okay, this is not great stuff, but this is real stuff. So I had occasion last week when I just saw the corner of my eye, someone making reference to uh, last week on December 14th, 1981, marked the anniversary of Dana Bradley's uh, kidnapping and eventual murder. I was only about 12 years old at the time. I remember the community was shocked, you know, because that back in those days, I'll say, it certainly wasn't sort of the dangerous type of city that it feels like these days. So Dana Bradley, of course, was kidnapped and murdered. Her body was found some four days later down in Maddox Cove. There's been a lot of really strange stuff happened ever since. So that's 42 years ago. So there, at one point, there was a fellow confessed. He recanted his testimony. He later was uh, sentenced to two years in prison for that false statement. Then there was a couple of cars identified out in Witless Bay, and they were uh, excavated. This was a private group doing that. There was no real evidence there to lead to any further knowledge of what happened to Dana Bradley that day. So at the time, they talked about it being the most expensive and exhaustive murder invest- investigation in Canadian history. And so at the time when I'm reading this, and of course, new DNA evidence came to pass in May of 2016. As soon as I finished reading a little bit more about the Dana Bradley story, immediately what popped into my mind is, I wonder will we ever find out what happened to Jennifer Hillier Penny? I, I swear to God, as soon as I finished thinking about the Dana Bradley story, I thought of Jennifer Hillier Penny. And then lo and behold, I see while scrolling through the doom scroll on Twitter once again over the weekend, that there was an announcement coming from the RCMP regarding her disappearance. So her remains have never been found, and now her estranged husband, Dean Penny, has been charged with first-degree murder. Now, no details of what led to this eventual charge, but it's going to be fascinating to see this unfold in the court of law. There hasn't been much in the way of commentary coming from Jennifer Hillier Penny's family or supporters from St. Anthony or thereabouts, but I guess we'll all find out in due course. He's been remanded until the trial begins. And he makes, I think he, he shows up in Cornerbrook at the courthouse this morning, if I'm not mistaken. But Dean Penny arrested. Now, all allegations at this moment in time. But you can only hope 
If indeed Dean Petty murdered his estranged wife, they were separated at the time. Jennifer was living with her parents and was just going over to uh, sit with her own daughter while apparently Dean was going duck hunting. So again, we don't know anything beyond that. But one more time, if he did indeed do it, I sure hope he tells the cops where her remains are. You know, so that was really quite out of the blue. Read about Dana Bradley and then bang, thought immediately of Jennifer Hillier Penny and boom, there we go. All of a sudden, a charge laid all these seven years later. She disappeared on the 30th of November of 2016. Amazing stuff. And to that end, the big announcement that's coming up today, I think, at Quadrangle, there'll be more information coming about the $13.6 million from the federal government to talk about ending gender-related violence. So on the top of those two stories, there you go. We don't have a whole lot of information there, but I think the minister responsible, Pam Parsons, will be making an announcement today about what we can see coming on that front with those three stories, unfortunately linked. We had a conversation on Friday about the agreed statement of facts read into the court docket about the incidents that led up to the death of Brett Carvin. And Joshua Burt driving 129 kilometers per hour in the wrong direction when his truck plowed into a caravan's car, he was died instantly. So at that point, that's all the information we had. Now, uh, Bert had pled guilty, you know, he says, to spare the family and friends from a long, sad trial. Then they were going back into the courtroom to uh, continue the sentencing phase uh, uh, last Friday at 2 p.m. And then, lo and behold, we were told that the Crown and the defense attorney had agreed on a recommendation of three years and three months for Bert. It just doesn't feel like enough time regarding punishment when a man is dead. You know, in a violent outburst because he was fighting with his girlfriend, three sheets of the wind gets behind the wheel of his vehicle, and again, Brad Caravan is dead. Three years, three months, sounds like a really, as people refer to, uh, quasi-slap on the wrist for such a devastating crime. Okay, how are we doing out there this morning, Dave? And this is the final week of the show, so we can open up the floodgates. You know, we'll take on the issues of the day, and even if you want to do something as fundamental as spread around some holiday cheer and wish some people important to you that might not even be in the province or maybe not close to the community where you live, and you want to do stuff like that this week, I'm completely up to it. So, and in the world of the school system. So, the children are out from K-12 to on Wednesday. It's unlikely there'll be a whole lot of schooling done in the next few days. Maybe some teachers will continue to dig in, but it's unlikely. And of course, the students will be restless knowing that the holidays are right around the corner. When speaking with uh, Trent Langdon, the president of the NLTA last week, you know, it does feel a bit cold-hearted to say that the inclusive model, all while it's a solid concept, is just simply not working. You know, and you can't pile it all on the Minister of Education, Crystalline Howell. Still relatively new to the portfolio, but the fact of the matter is, whether it be the uh, issues regarding violence in the school, teachers were spending a significant portion of their day just dealing with three, four, five, six students uh, as opposed to trying to deliver the curriculum to the entirety of the classroom. We see the trending downward scores of math, science, and, and reading, so when you pile it all together, it sounds great, it's a feel-good, but it's just unfortunately not working. And we can talk about school curriculum from any angle if you see fit, but I did see an interesting post that people are suggesting more of this type of work to be done in the classroom, and at different grade levels, of course, but talking about taxes and finances, talking about coding, cooking, insurance, basic home repair, self-defense, survival skills, first aid, social etiquette, personal finance control, public speaking, important one. You can never go wrong if you're able to speak in public. Maybe 
even a little some a small engine maintenance, maybe some stress management, and then of course add to it the stories we've been t- trying to talk about regarding just how much time children, young youth, are spending on social media, and what's that meaning for their anxiety and depression and the potential for outbursts of violence. Don't take it from me. Take it from the scientists who are actually doing brain scans to understand what's happening with the country's youth. And then add to it. And I don't know how you craft a message appropriately for different grades. And you don't want to be scaring the be-you-know-what out of students while they're in school trying to learn. But we're seeing the stories, you know, of protests happening around the country, a real spike in anti-Semitism and in Islamophobia. And there's a couple of terrorists. Well, there's been five terror-related arrests uh, and charges laid in Ottawa since the summer. So we see the atrocities, we see the heartbreak, we see the death and destruction. And again, I guess it depends on the age of your child, but all of those terror-related charges and the one that happened over the weekend was a teenager. So when we see them scroll on social media and you don't know what is real and what's accurate, what's fake, what's misinformation or disinformation, but people are supercharged. I mean, it feels like there's so many people in the country that are absolutely on a knife's edge. So I know that's a big conversation, and I know we're trying to avoid a lot of these types of issues that we just try to navigate our own world, try to get to Friday and get to the uh, Christmas or the holiday break. But anyway, you want to take it on. We can do it. And it's the final week uh, for Minister Abbott in his hope to see nobody at Tent City. So housing is going to remain one of the massive conversations here right across the country. And lastly... So we had Keith Mews on the program last week, and he's one of the fellas behind a group that has put that big billboard up on t- tops of the road about long COVID and repeat infections and what have you. You know, th- the issue, I think, has quickly become when someone says COVID, and look, I'm as sick of it as you are. When someone says COVID, the first, uh, first m- place that people's minds go is, well, mandatory vaccines restrictions, can't see my senior uh, loved one in a long-term care facility, couldn't go to the funeral, those types of things, as opposed to what I think is the hope, you know, so much like climate change. First things first for many people is uh, carbon taxes, when in fact it's a bigger, broader conversation and more nuanced and simply, you know, one focus area of carbon tax. And with the COVID, you know, I said to Keith, and I was taken to task pretty quickly by many folks, I said, I think people know what's happening out there in the public, and they can judge themselves accordingly with masking or going to parties or whatever the case may be. But I guess they're probably right in that COVID seems to be pretty prevalent. I don't think about it a whole lot, but since that conversation and people who have been chiming in on it, you know, it seems like there's a lot of COVID in the community and other respiratory illnesses, but what was once a really relentless bombardment of daily updates on tests or pardon me on cases now had the numbers that we're seeing today based on positive testing and or wastewater uh, testing and what have you it's probably worse than it's ever been so again i don't talk about it to make anyone afraid i'm not trying to be sensational but they're not wrong in saying what was once a never-ending barrage of information has now been pretty much a trickle so when i said i think people are aware of what's happening maybe not I guess I tried to be aware. Why not? Because I'm following a variety of issues and stories every single day, seven days a week. But people probably are not fully aware because we've kind of, people have moved on. You know, it's been an arduous few years. And I completely understand. And it's been a very different sort of time for someone sitting in this chair, for instance. But maybe some public information so you can make an informed decision. Not to be afraid, but maybe to manage your own affairs based on some better 
and more frequent. I'm not talking about bringing back the daily briefing with Dr. Fitzgerald and the Premier and the Minister of Health of the day and on and on. No, 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 no. Just a little bit more information, more widely shared. Again, you do with it as you see fit. And I'll be accused immediately of fear-mongering when I have no interest in it. You know, being aware is different than being in fear. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. I want to start with a little good news. Why not? I'm in that kind of spirit here. Let's go to line number four. Annette, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm, vo- I'm well, thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. I won't take up much of your time. I just thought I'd call and congratulate the students, teachers, and parents of Dynamic Sounds Music Studio because this year they're not putting on like a huge concert like they always did, but they're going to 10 different homes to sing and play and entertain the uh, seniors there. And, you know, it's a really nice thing to do. And I'd like to say congratulations to all of them for putting in the effort to be able to do it. Bravo. I'm with you. Uh, what's the name of the group again? I'm sorry. Dynamic Sounds Music Studio. Dynamic Sounds Music Studio. Do you have someone belong to you as a member? Well, I used to teach there for many years. Okay. And now I'm, I'm one of the retirees, right? I'm one of the seniors. And um, I, I taught there a long time. It used to be Discover Music, and then it changed hands um, to Desi- uh, Dynamic Sounds Music Studio on the direction of uh, Mrs. Michelle Chippett. And um, that's what they decided to do. The teachers and said that, you know, our young people don't see seniors who can't get out and drive or do anything like that. They All they can do is just be where they are day after day. So this is what they decided to do. It's stories like this, and you know, we've seen other classrooms that would be involved and they'd visit a long-term care facility and establish like a pen pal relationship with one of the seniors. Yeah. They're excellent stories, and I'm glad that the folks at Dynamic are doing exactly this. So will all these homes be in and around the Northeast Avalon? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, like each teacher will go to, with their group of students that kind of a way, and of course parents are helping out because they're doing the driving and stuff like that. So it, it's a it's a big thing, and and the weather looks pretty good because we don't have any snow coming soon. <laughs> so by this week, by the end, but they finish up on Thursday, they'll they'll have accomplished what they're setting out to do. Wonderful story, Annette. Are you living in your own home or in one of these long term care facilities? No, I'm in my own home. Okay, great. Well, bravo to everyone participating in that 10-facility tour. I'm sure it'll be most welcomed by the residents and the staff. And the the staff, yeah, and the children, too. It's an eye-opener for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. I thank you for letting me congratulate them, and I thank you for doing the same thing. And I appreciate your time. Merry Christmas to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Annette. Uh, Let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Frank, you're on the air. Hey, how are you doing there, Patty boy? Doing okay this morning, Frank. How are you doing? Well, by Patty, I'm calling by about the housing situation, but I want to call and wish you a very Merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year ahead because times have changed since 81. I don't even know if I'm even allowed to say that anymore because you got to be so politically correct on what you say and how you say it and how you address things and with the, with the situations that are going on today. So the situation I'm going to talk about, Patty, is the, 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 the housing situation in, the, in, the, in regards to the 10 cities and all that now. Patty, uh, I'm sure you recognize my voice. My uh, my name my name is not Frank. It's like Frank the Tank, and I'm going to blow you away with some with some facts that I read about last night. Like this is uh, your good old friend Casper, the friendly ghost, there, Pat. 
So just to get off on a, great, a good note, uh, I just want to call and say, you know, when the government, like I said, when I was watching TV there, I just got back from British Columbia, and I see up, I was up on Hastings Street, and I see what what homelessness is really all about, and and poverty, and and, and the drug use, and all that. But in regards to what the government, you know, what government's doing, all right, here's here's something that I read last night, and only in Canada, you're talking to a lady there, just then, a senior citizen. Now I got no problem with refugees coming in, working. Hey, God love them. Everyone deserves to live a normal, safe, free life and everything. But what I can't swallow is the fact that when you bring a refugee into Canada, refugee status, they, can, they make up to almost $28,000 in given government funds. They get $1,800 a month plus a $558 living allowance, plus they're allowed to work. But when you add all that up at the end of the year, that's $28,000. Now, look at a senior citizen. A senior citizen will only collect half of that, $16,000 of, of that $28,000, who's been living here all their lives, who's paid into a pension, and the government sees fit to keep bringing more people in. This is where I get to the housing part now. So you're, you're, you're fluctuating a, a, a country, yes, Open arms, God love them. But you're bringing them in, but one, you're not looking at where are you going to put them to? Three, how much strain is that going to put on our system when it's already in turmoil as it is with our Newfoundland refugees? But how much strain does that put on the housing, the, the social programs, the, and the most of these refugees, Patty? Like, I would now get down to Chess Penny Center. I went down last week. I just got, like I said, I just got back. I was six months up in Vancouver working, and I got back and I went down to visit some old friends who helped me out back when I could see things on the other side of the coin. But when you got the government paying for these refugees to come in, now they're all supposed to be coming here to work because apparently Newfoundlanders don't want to do these jobs. So, all right, at one time Newfoundlanders be out picketing out around the bay because Nova Scotians and, and people from B.C. were brought in to do these jobs for tradesmen. All right. Not to get off topic again, but it seems to me that it's all about the, you know, what what looks good in the eyes of everybody else, but it doesn't look good in the eyes of some. And what's what's good for some ain't good, ain't, ain't good for a few. Now I heard uh, like there's, they're not putting the ice down in Bannerman Park for the loop this year. Well, it's a good friggin' thing because I'd say to be frozen it if they're sleeping tents next to the ice. Pardon the pun. But the, the situation with this, like the government sold that. Escazoni over there, the hospital, for $3 million. Land it all to a lady who had intentions of doing something with that building, but found out the financial fiasco, fiasco that it would take to maintain that building. Well, you're looking at a government who could have took all of this money that they're giving, like they're, they're, they're saying they're going to pump in. Well, it's going to be election time now, so we're going to do what we can. We're going to get a task force. Like one of the, like the PC leader of the opposition said, what you have to do, wait for the first snowfall? Now, listen, a lot of this is mental issues. But again, where, where, does the, where do we draw the line on, on being able to put refugees up in hotels, have them cabin back and forth to get food at food banks when our own people here are being neglected. And I mean, I don't mean, if Paul Davis can get on TV, I worked at the gathering place. Paul Davis was telling you one side of what the gathering place is like, but I see it with my eyes as a chef down there. 
I lasted six weeks last year down there. I could not believe what I was doing. And, Patty, I come from 18 years working with Coast Guard, search and rescue. And it is a different time. And, again, that's just been my topic. But desk is only. Here was an idea I just come up with in the top of my head, and I was I was pretty uh, carefree. I wasn't under the influence of anything. But um, the government could have took this facility, made it a, 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 like a sober living establishment. Each room is like down in the Virginia Park uh, estates down there for, the, for people. Turn this place into a place where not only for the people that are on welfare, like, but the government be getting, like, they'd be getting, that, they'd be making sure that someone, they'd have a place to live, they'd be sober living, they, they'd be getting some of their money back because when people that are on social assistance, most of them have to pay out, out of their checks for their beds and rooms and yada, yada, yada. And if there's problems there, put in place a billing that sits over their idle, but yet you can build a billion dollar or millions of dollar facility that's over there at the at the health signs that's only going to have 60 beds. Okay, so a so few things here. There's no, no question the levels of immigration are having a significant impact on housing and health care. There's no doubt about that. When you talk about monies for government-assisted refugees, there's a cap, and it's for the entire family. So if you could have a family of six under the family re- reunification policy, and that's a maximum of $26,000. Uh, on top of yep. that, they are allowed to work. Some of that money gets backed out of their government assistance, so it's not as easy as you work and every additional dollar you earn, you're allowed to keep because there is a there is a formula for but adjusting. they're allowed to keep up to a certain portion, Patty, while they're collecting and while I'll, they're living there. Casper, I'm telling you, I'm, 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 I'm giving you some facts. I got a point. I'll, I'll give you a few facts. If you're a dishwasher at Boston Pizza and you're from Syria and you're a dishwasher who can't speak English, but you're driving around in an Audi here in St. John's, there's something not right with this picture, Patty. Yeah, and there's so, something maybe not very accurate or true with that picture either. But there is a okay. formula for earnings, similar to if you're on I social know. assistance. There's a formula for yep. you don't get to keep every single dollar you earn and all the government monies. That's simply not the case. So, And it's also important to note that supports like that are generally available for just one year. Secondly, because if we didn't support anyone who arrived in the country, then consequently we'd be, we'd be setting ourselves up for a worse, uh, an even worse circumstance. Ukrainians, based on the fast track that they were involved with, they don't get those government yep. supports. So so there's a few things that we got to add to that pile, but it doesn't make anyone a bad person to wonder whether or not we should pump the brakes on the numbers of people being welcomed. There's nothing changed in the program or the policy. It's simply the numbers have changed under the liberal government. Yeah. So if we can't figure out the housing issue and access to family doctors and wait times inside healthcare, we've got to ensure that we're not setting people up to come over. And whether you want to characterize it as make things worse, but also people don't want to relocate to Canada to not be able to find a home. You know, not be able to find a place to live. So the federal and government just seems... And and everything. That don't make sure. no sense to me. The government has really, right. really dug in on this one, and I think they've miscalculated the politics on this and the reality on the ground. So I'm glad you called, Frank, and I appreciate your time. I hope you're doing okay, buddy. Hey, uh, I just want to say again, Quickly. thank you so much, for, uh, and thank you to your listeners. I want to again wish you and all the staff of EOCM a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And another thing, too. I don't care about refugees coming here and wanting to work in that, but don't push your don't push your agendas and and, and your stuff on us because we, because we grow up in a different time. And like I said, there's all kinds of different things out there for different people. I just think the government they got like someone got Pierre Polyev, someone should put his glasses back on and Trudeau, all them fellas. Look, you you know the ins and outs of this, Patty. At the end of the day, 
everybody deserves to have a roof over their head and a friggin', a friggin' meal in their belly and money in their pocket and to be helped out when they need it. Okay. Not when it becomes a crisis and puts strain and more strain on the system itself when the system... You're talking about rolling blackouts. Here's a red flag. Rolling blackouts. Now you got more people living here. You're going to use more energy. You know what I mean? You got these electric vehicles. Is the infrastructure set up? Is it different from 10 years ago? I don't yes. know. But maybe all that yes. money that they all stole from Muskrat Falls, they're going to put that into something with the health care and the mental issues and all that. Have a great day, Patty. I love you, buddy. It was great, great talking to you. And I'm glad to be able to give you a call on a good note and say Merry Christmas again and a Happy New Year, my friend. Same to you, Casper. All the best. All right, Patrick. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Ring in the new year with a special edition of the Irish Newfoundland Show, 9 p.m. New Year's Eve. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to your listeners. Sir. Uh, you know, we're, we're on the holiday season now, so, you know, it's... Uh, important time of year to uh, to be with our friends and family and i just want to wish everyone a merry christmas and a happy new year in the province the same to you and yours and everyone in lab west what's on your mind this morning jordan well first of all let's, let's speak about uh, you know the, the ongoing issues now we're, we're talking about you know availability of electricity especially on the island portion of the province and you know me and you have t- had many conversations about you know the the access need that we also need here in lab west you know our lines are maxed out we can't uh, we can't grow or move our economy anymore because we're we're maxed out for, for electricity over here but now we're starting to see that uh, you know the, even on the island portion of the province we're talking about you know uh, lead lining with a sense of demand you know holy roots down to one generator the wheel is not uh, not deemed uh, you know uh, you know efficient or uh, you know uh, stable in the sense that it has a lot of downtime so the question now has to be asked is with all this going on a lot of these problems are you know transcending four or five years now you know, where are we to on uh, the stabilization of our power in this province? Where are we to when it comes to generation? You know, we have the Lille that's not, uh, you know, that's having its own issues. And now we're talking about generation on the island and not being able to meet demand this winter. You know, this is the question we need to ask is where are we to when it comes to, you know, beta spare aid or any other project that may be able to stabilize the power on the island? Yeah. So, I mean... What does that question mean specifically? Because Hydro will say they're evaluating all kinds of stuff. And as usual, people latch on to one thing that captures their attention. In this case, it was Hatch's recommendation of 150 megawatt diesel fire generator to be stationed at Holyrood. So when can you break down your question a little bit more specifically? Then we'll have a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because, well, you know, we, we talked about Beta Spirit. Beta Spirit has been a plan that's been on the go since the 80s. Uh, it's been, you know, we talked about, you know, it was, there was going to be a need for it. it, it when they when they did the upgrades to Beta Spirit in the 70s and 80s, they actually had it, like, pre-done, that, you know, that, that eighth generator can be, uh, can be installed into the into that dam. Uh, we knew that was, you know, long before even I was born, we knew it was going to be a, a, a potential project on the island. We turned around just before Muskrat Falls started. They put a moratorium on hydro development on the entire island of, of the province. So then that obviously puts a lot of kibosh on a lot of different things. So now we're talking about obviously burning fossil fuels again, and we're sitting here with our hands going, well, the island needed power. It was going to need more power at some point in time. But nothing was ever moved forward. We uh, uh, forward, Even though we knew we were going to build Muskrat Falls, we knew that there was still going to be need power on the island. But b- both the PC and liberal governments of the past decided to, you know, sit on their hands and hope for the best. And now we're in a situation where we don't, we can't meet demand in in, in this changing world, and now we're going to burn more fossil fuels for it. 
Well, so we're going to burn more fossil fuel. Do you mean at Hollywood? Continue. Well, well, Hollywood was supposed to be retired by this time. Uh, in the in the previous uh, progressive conservative plan, Hollywood was supposed to be retired at this point, but yet we can't do it. And obviously, at the same time, we never did any work on any of the hydro developments that are on the island. Not build, saying build new ones, but we didn't do any upgrades on any of the hydro dams that we have on the island as it is. Yeah, Hollywood, Steve Mill, and Hardwood are all commissioned in the 1970s. So obviously, there's plenty of work to be done. And to talk about the portfolio of power generating, and you know, peak demand of some 1,800 megawatts on the island this winter is the forecast. So there's 11 hydroelectric plants, one oil fire plant, four gas turbines, and 25 diesel plants to supply electricity. And of course, with the concerns of two out of the three units at Holy Road down, Stephenville down until sometime in February. You know, the installation of an eighth generating unit at Beta Spare doesn't happen overnight. So oh. there's reliability concerns. I'm really struggling to try to have a better understanding of the integration, whether it be onshore or offshore wind. I mean, Jennifer Williams, CEO at Hydro, says she sees a future for wind with Hydro's portfolio in the future. What does that mean, though? Like, you know, we don't, firm output of power, uh, pardon me, firm power output here now is minimal. We don't have power to sell. You know, in fact, that we may indeed, if you listen to Newfoundland Power, we may indeed see some elevated concerns regarding brownouts or blackouts this winter. Hydro says that's not, not true, and they're prepared and ready to go. But, sir, the demand, and you know how accurate the demand forecasts of doubling capacity by 2050? Will that really happen? I don't know. They always say that a lot of that is based on electric vehicles, but, I mean, let's be real. Electric vehicles aren't going to be that prominent, are they? Maybe, but I don't know. No one has a crystal ball. We have to ensure that if it's going to be that type of demand that Newfoundland Labrador Hydro is ready to meet it, but still an awful lot of moving parts on this one, but yet everyone just focusing on burning more diesel on a 150-megawatt uh, generator at Hollywood, when even Hydro says, that's just a recommendation from Hatch. They haven't even carefully evaluated what they might do yet. No, absolutely. So you look at the two things. So wind is based, based, based basically on what what weather forecast is, because wind it has an, uh, peaks and it also has a uh, uh, downtime. So every time you do wind, you have to pair it with something, you know, you have your supply versus capacity. So we actually have to have capacity built into the system. So something that's guaranteed when you flip the switch, it runs. So right now, wind is uh, intermittent at this point in time. So we don't have no, we can't, at this point, we don't have the technology to store vast amounts of wind energy. But we do need to have this something in our, in our back pocket that is actually going to have the capacity on the island. So when you flip that switch, there's power available to the province. So right now, we have some ability, but we just don't have a stable supply from Labrador to the island. That's 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 the key problem we have right now. We can't guarantee power from Labrador to the island during peak time. So where is the plan to build on the island to make sure that if that link is broken, there's something on the island? You know, we, like, and I just had a mention ago, the idea of Betasberry, that was back in the 80s, that plan was put forward. And Hydro sat on their hands, government sat on their hands, and never bothered to push forward to build it. And now, like you said, you got Hatch talking about, uh, you know, building a diesel plant at, at Holyrood. You know, and when we were supposed to be, you know, we were sold this, this plan that Holyrood would be decommissioned and we'll never have to worry about it again. And now, you know, we have to upgrade Holyrood. There may be expansion to Holyrood. You know, we really, you know, two previous governments really, really, really dropped the ball on this one. And now, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, uh, possibility and you know and, and hopefully not you know fingers crossed it doesn't happen of you know possible downtime you know in our electrical system on the island of Newfoundland and we, we were sold you know Muskrat Falls are the thing that this would never happen again 
Yeah, well, I mean, listen to Liberty Consulting, their concerns with the Muskrat Falls reliability issue. And they say if there's anything that happens throughout the Long Range Mountains, of course, a lot of remote, isolated uh, stand towers out there. You know, at one point when some of the wires hit the ground because of whatever, they were swinging around like a jump rope and then they broke and they were on the ground. It took weeks to get in at it because you had to plow the roads through the snow and get them and repair them and put them back up. Liberty says if there's a, an extended issue inside the Long Range Mountains portion of the Lil, then we're talking about the uh, possibility of 45 to 60 days. I mean, that's extremely real and extremely worrisome when we see and hear from Newfoundland Power. Now again, Hydro says that Newfoundland Power is unnecessarily hyperventilating on this one. That's my words, not theirs. But we'll see what the future holds for this particular winter. You can only hope that it's not a reliability issue that sees us back to what people like to call dark NL. Uh, anything else this morning, Jordan? Well, absolutely. Uh, I just want to mention, like I said, today, here we are in the middle of December, and I'm going to get uh, you know, between 30 to 50 millimeters of rain in Labrador West. Uh, you know, this is <laughs> this is unheard of. We're going to have we have a heavy rainfall warning in the middle of uh, December for this area. And I just want to remind people, like you know, one obviously anyone in Labrador West, you know, take extreme caution. It's going to be wet. It's going to be slippery. It's going to be you know possibility. You know, keep an eye on your property. Keep an eye on your neighbors. But the second thing is. This is not going to change, uh, Patty. This kind of weather in Labrador, this is going to affect the lil, this is going to affect transmission, this is going to affect all kinds of different things. We are in a world where we're going to see a lot more extreme weather, and we have there is actual capacity built on the island of Newfoundland to protect it and its residents from any possibilities. I know it was a great plan back in, you know, early 2000s to, you know, run this line and everything like that, but at the same time, they did not do it the way it should have been done for extreme weather. Yeah, I mean, tomorrow's forecast from Labrador, parts of the big land are going to be 20 degrees above average. I mean, amazing. Oh, yeah. Temperatures into the teens. Wild. It is absolutely wild, Patty. And, you know, I, I lived my entire life in Labrador, and this is the first I've ever seen a forecast like that. So, anyway, take care, Patty, you and uh, wish all your residents the best. Take care. Bye-bye. You take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, where would you like me to go? Three, David? Okay. Get the thumbs up. <laughs> Let's go to line three. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How about you? Good, thanks. Just want to make some comments about the uh, RCMP uh, news conference on the weekend, charging Dean Penny with the first-degree murder of his wife. Yep. Uh, first off, I uh, want to extend an enormous amount of uh, compassion and empathy to the family of Jennifer Hillier Penny. Uh, she's gone missing for over seven years. It must be just unbelievable anguish and, and anxiety and stress, not knowing where where she is, you know. Police have never, to this point, have not found her uh, alive or deceased. That must be a, a very terrible burden on her family and her friends. And I just wanted to uh, extend my condolences to that family. But uh, secondly, I want to talk about the RCMP news conference uh, announcing that they charged her husband Dean Penny with first degree murder. Mm -hmm. No, I have two points on this. Uh, the first point is the police in the news conference were getting into uh, their standards for laying a murder charge against him. And they repeatedly said that they needed sufficient evidence to support the laying of the charge against him. And they further said that they do have sufficient evidence to lay the charge against him. That's not the standard according to the Supreme Court of Canada. 
the standard for the police to uh, effect an arrest and make criminal charge against anybody in this country is the reasonable and probable grounds to believe an offence has been committed. I mean, is that a hair split there? I mean, no. don't they kind of mean the same thing? No. No. The question of whether there's sufficient evidence, that's a, that's a legal test for a judge. It's called a prima facie case. The Supreme Court of Canada has said in the 1990 case, the Queen versus Story, that the police do not need to establish a prima facie case in order to um, make an arrest. All right. I mean, I didn't watch the news. Uh, what? Yeah, it's you know, it's it, it, it repeatedly said sufficient evidence. Okay, and so what's the point? Why is that a problem? Because they may not have any evidence, or they may have insufficient evidence. My case in point is, uh, let's say, like Greg Parsons. Did they have any evidence against him at the end of the day? No. Did they arrest him and charge him with the murder of his mother? Yes, they did because it believed on reasonable and probable grounds that he murdered her. And they had nothing against it. No murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, no confession, no other statements, nothing. Yeah, we're hindsighting that one, though, because we know a lot more about the Greg Parsons right. issue versus we don't know anything about the Dean Penny issue, other right. than the fact he's been charged. Right. I don't and know. I have no Sorry, idea what ahead. they are calling or qualifying as sufficient evidence. I have no earthly idea about what kind of tip or evidence collection came in to, uh, to justify this charge based on reasonable grounds. I don't know, but that's all a matter for the courts now. So, you know, right. the RCMP, that press conference was basically to say that there was an arrest made because that's not even the end of the day for them because the investigation continues. So what might what more might be brought to bear? I have no idea. But like I said earlier off the top of the show, I guess we'll all find out at the same time. Yep, but the, the question of whether there's sufficient evidence is why you have a preliminary hearing. A provincial court judge will, if there is a preliminary hearing in this case, a provincial court judge will determine whether there's sufficient evidence to commit an stand trial. It's called establishing, the Crown has to establish a prima facie case. That is, that there is a sufficient admissible and relevant evidence such that a reasonable and properly instructed jury could convict him. That's the sufficient evidence standard. Uh, quickly, That's not the reasonable ground standard. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm not sure what that means for the eventual legal outcome of this case, or whether it's neither here nor there. You know, it might be clumsily selected language, but uh, anyway. Well, you know, you're talking about the RCMP. They are the investigative police force investigating this, uh, the, this the disappearance of this woman and alleged uh, murder. So, you know, they're holding the news conference, the province-wide news conference. They have charged somebody. He's in remand. He has not had a preliminary hearing. He has not had a trial. He hasn't had a, a, a bail hearing. He has not seen the evidence or proposed evidence against him. And yet the RCMP can get on a province-wide news conference and slam him and start making statements that they have sufficient evidence. That's a legal, that is a legal standard that's determined by a judicial officer, not a peace officer. All right, we'll see what the courts. I'm not sitting here, sir, Patty. This is not an exercise in semantics. It, it kind of is, because it's almost neither here nor there. They didn't go too far, I don't think, in most people's opinions here, because everything that's yet to be heard in front of a judge is yet to happen. So I don't know if you're suggesting that all of a sudden jury pools have been poisoned or what have you, because they'll actually hear what has happened over the course of the investigation since 2016, as opposed to a blunt statement from an RCMP officer at a press conference that inevitably will be years before the trial actually starts. 
and or a however long. Decide, and a trial judge will decide what evidence, if any, that a jury gets to hear. The judge is the gatekeeper of the evidence. Right. So right. we'll see what the judges say. Very quickly, because I have to go, uh, any thoughts on the uh, joint submission of three years and three months for Joshua Burt? Bullshit. Yeah. Terrible. Uh, the, second, the second point, very quickly on this, is another quote from this news conference. They said, sadly, quote, sadly, our investigation determined that Jennifer's murder is yet another death due to intimate partner violence in our province, end quote. How do they know that? Well, they were partners. And they were in the middle of a separation, so I don't think it's coincident that the uh, the alleged killer is the estranged husband. They did. They did say the word alleged. That's what they said. I just quoted what they said. But the murder charge is an allegation. The relationship right. is the relationship. No, our investigation determined that Jennifer's murder. So that's a given that she's murdered. That's still alleged. They didn't say alleged. Jennifer's murder is yet another death due to intimate partner violence in our province. What they're saying is he murdered her. So we don't need to have a trial. We don't need to see evidence. You just take our word for that. But we will have a trial. Right. That's what we will be having. Uh, Colin, I'm late for the break. Appreciate the time, and uh, have yourself a great holiday season. Merry Christmas. You too. Cheers. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Break time. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Good morning. Hello? You're, yeah. you're that's on, me. Oh, yeah, that's sorry, you. Patty. No problem. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, first time caller, obviously. Um, I'm just calling um, just as a statement here, just to inform the public of a national effort that's taking place throughout Canada today. Um through Palestine Solidarity Canada. Um, so today, a group of uh, concerned constituents will be uh, holding a peaceful demonstration outside Joanne Thompson's office today. That's at 120 Torbay Road at 12 p.m. Um, over the situation that's happening in Gaza and Canada's complicity. And I'm just going to mention, too, this effort is not coordinated by Palestinians, but there has been input from Palestinian groups across the country. Um, we echo the demands of the Palestinian youth movement. Um, we're calling on our MPs to take action. Um, and I'm just going to read this out real quick. We demand a immediate permanent ceasefire, an end to the siege, and Canada's complicity in this occupation and to free Palestine. Um, and I just wanted to give a shout out to everyone to please follow uh, the local group here, Palestine Solidarity Action NL, um, through social media, um, and the Palestine Solidarity Canada to stay informed just on everything that's going on. So Canada did indeed sign on to the UN declaration calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, not a temporary one, but a permanent one. So what do you think is missing inside the way that the country, whether it be uh, Ambassador Ray or the Prime Minister or Minister Jolie, what are you not hearing that you want to hear? Um, well, I mean, there's definitely still a firm stance with Israel right now, um, and there has been nothing said as far as the uh, Israeli-Canada trade agreement. Um, you know, there's still arms and technology being supplied to Israel. Even within here in our province, there is um, a company that is supplying uh, intelligence surveillance, um, 
And yeah, I, I just want, you know, we want them to stop supplying arms. Um, I'm, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm not versed to kind of like speak on this right now. I just wanted to give a shout out really that uh, people could show up to show support and as well to show support at the rallies and to to follow uh, the local group for those rallies. Yeah, reporting says, and again, there's it's really so difficult to come up with absolute accurate information but the reports are saying that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 18,800 dead since October the 7th in Gaza yeah. so I mean it's a staggering number I, I will just put this out there and I'm not going to put you on the spot to, uh, to answer mm-hmm. any questions here is there's a difference in a protest looking at the humanitarian needs and the mm-hmm. death that's being wrought and the siege or the raising of the Gaza Strip that doesn't make anyone attending these protesters uh, anti-Semitic or pro-Hamas there are different things. You know it when you hear it. You'll know it when you see it. There was a protest in a Toronto mall uh, over the weekend, and the commentary was very clear. They were Palestinian supporters of Hamas talking about killing Jews. That's different than saying we need to see the the we need to see the uh, the stop or ceasefire, the collective punishment being afforded to the residents, the citizens of Gaza. And again, when people say that you know, well, the Palestinians are responsible for Hamas. But let's be a little bit more nuanced here. They've been in power for some 17 years, and it's not like free and fair elections in Gaza or the West Bank. So add to it, half of the 2.2 million people living in Gaza are under the age of 18. So they didn't vote for Hamas. So to pretend that all of a sudden every single person living there is pro-Hamas is almost the exact same thing as saying everyone that's living in Israel is supportive of Netanyahu and the IDF, which, of course, is not true. So if people are saying, you know, kill Jews, that's different than save save Palestinians. They're two different things. It doesn't mean that Israel didn't have the right to defend itself after the 1,200 people were killed on October 7th, but there's defending yourself and then there's what we're seeing here. So I would hope that the type of conversations and protests we're seeing around the country are not Mm -hmm. full-on, full-blown, either one or the other, anti-Semitic or Islamophobic, because there's ways to have these conversations without having to be pigeonholed like that. Oh, absolutely. And that's like part of the problem that well, that's a huge problem now too um, here. So I definitely would hope that people would be following, um, especially reporters in Palestine and different um, just media literacy, like to not be following. Um, there is a lot of um, Islamophobia and dehumanizing language, even within Canadian media. So just encourage people to not just solely get your information from one outlet, because that's a huge problem um, and probably why so many people aren't aware of what what's currently going on. Um, and there is a huge need for humanitarian aid. So more people really need to come together in the community and show up for these things because it does have an impact on all of us. Well, and again, you know, neither of us are there, but if you read even in Israel's biggest and main newspaper, the support for Netanyahu and for what's happening in Gaza is extremely low. So again, Mm -hmm. we just have to be, you know, it's not about being careful or politically correct, but let's include all of the nuance of what is a very geopolitically complicated, messy, ugly, brutal, decades old, if not centuries old issue. No, not centuries old, that wouldn't be accurate, but decades old concern here. I mean, since the yeah. Six-Day War and decades prior to that, this has been a tinderbox. And now we see yeah. what's happening. Hamas is a terrorist organization. 
We know that to be true. We know that the fact that a terrorist organization could never be fully recognized as an actual government, a governing body. Half of the Palestinian population never voted for Hamas. They weren't alive when Hamas was uh, elected into government. And again, we're not talking about people going to the polls and having their names scratched off of the voters list. We're talking about pressure and threats by a terrorist organization to say that they're the ones who are going to be the government and you get in line. So there's a lot to this, but uh, give the folks the details one more time about where this demonstration is going to take place. Yeah, so we'll be outside holding a peaceful demonstration at 120 Torbay Road at 12 p.m. today. So hopefully people can attend, especially on the lunch hour. There is a global strike that is also um, happening today as well, kind of in support. And the group would recommend, you know, try not to hold off on purchases today. Um, Probably a little late to be saying anything about, you know, global strike at the moment. But um Anyway, if anyone can pop down, we're just going to have some music, hopefully speak a little bit. And we've requested that uh, Joanne speak with us um, because a lot of our MPs, all levels of government have been very quiet on all this. And Canada is complicit in this genocide. So I think people really need to wake up to that and hopefully put more pressure, send emails, call um the more pressure we can put on our MPs to act, the quicker there can be hopefully an end to this, a release of all the prisoners who are currently being held. Um, and yeah, we all got to do our part. So hopefully people can make it out. And uh, if you can't, please follow the local Palestine Solidarity Action NL on social media to stay informed. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Greg, you're next in the queue. He's talking about difficulty getting a learning disability assessment for his child. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. Your Merry Christmas station is back. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number two. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. I'm phoning in about an assessment. In January, I signed a paper for school to do assessment on my son. And in June, I was told that there was a six-month backlog. They couldn't do it. I'd like to know when that backlog started. But now, since he's not in school, he could have went back to school in September, but he told the school board he wouldn't go back to the school he was into because the way he was treated. And I can't afford to take them anywhere else to put them in school. But this assessment got to be done before anything, in order to get a job or anything, they got to have an assessment done. And I, I, I was given an 866 number, and I phoned that this morning. And they told me to phone back to another number. And when I phoned that number, they told me to phone back to another number. And where I got the number from in the first place, the 866 number. I'm getting this runaround. Who was the 866 number that you were calling? What? Who was the uh, who's on the other end? Centralized Intake Worker with Community Support. Okay. So you, the, your son needs a learning disability assessment? Yeah. That's ADHD. Okay, because okay. he has ADHD. Have you tried to get some guidance from the Learning Disability Association? They're helpful. Oh, about. Where? The, the Learning Disabilities Association of Newfoundland oh, and Labrador. Patty. In September, I phoned the, the premier's office, Department of Education, 
uh, uh, disability office in Confederation Building. All them phone numbers. I phoned all them. Okay, so you say, and, and, and no one, no one phoned me back. No one gave me any answers. The, you, these people that's working for the government, they won't phone you back. Uh, uh, I'm seven years trying to get answers from the school board. Uh, when Dale Kirby was minister, I wrote him first, and I, I went right back through to, I didn't write Haggy, but I wrote every other one, trying to get answers, and the school board won't answer a question. So, Greg, you say that your son is unwilling to go back to the school that he was in because of the way he was treated, but if you, and you said you went on to say, I think that you don't have the ability or the money to bring him somewhere else to go to school, so let's say the learning disability assessment gets done, then what? Where's going to go to school but, uh, but there's no help for them there's no help there's no the the all you're getting is a runaround that's all you're getting with them and and that's that's going to continue on and on and and they don't want them in the school they taste they do but they don't he he would have went back to school i wasn't even allowed in school for school for his graduation i got kicked out of school for asking questions that's what happened. Uh, I went into. I had to go in and sign him out and take him across the road for lunch. But when he was in Cornerbrook, he could get out of my car and go across the parking lot at Walmart and, and go to uh, Mary Brown's and that all by himself. But when he was over at this school there, he wasn't even allowed outside the door. Greg, would you like me to give you the number? Would you like me to give you the number to the Learning Disabilities Association who might be able to help you navigate if they're not the government? All right, give me that one. Sure, 709. Yeah, 709. Yeah, 709. Yeah. 753. 7? 5, 3. 7? 5, 3. 2? 7, 5, 3. 3? 1, 4. 1, 4. 4, 5. 4, 5? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there... For you going to get... Uh, uh, if I can't get no answers there, I'll be on the phone. I'll be phoning you again. Okay. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Greg. Take right. care. Right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number three. Manuel, you're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty. Good morning to you. Yeah, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, too. Thank you. Yeah, I want to update you on the water situation with the town of Georgia Book Milton. Uh, Patty, they kept us six months from the time, uh, and they came back and said no. And they said they had insufficient funds. So that's where we're to. Um, to me, I don't know what it is, Patty, and it's Christmas, so I don't want to be uh, saying too much to uh, where it's Christmas time. Uh, but since they said no, uh, we found a contractor, and, uh, and the contractor started digging there this morning. No, they came. They came there. The town sent people there, but they couldn't help us hook it up because they said uh, uh, they said we're I don't know they're kind of a private line. But if you're within a municipality, I don't see where you got a private line to hook on to the main water. 
Right. And now, I have heard from the town on this particular issue, and of course, they go on to say that where you built your new home about, I don't know, 400 meters beyond the, the end of the community water system, that, that happened before the town was actually even incorporated. So they also go on to say that, you know, they do indeed have uh, money issues. They have submitted a bunch of capital work bids. They have a special assistance grant application specifically to get you guys hooked up more quickly. They uh, say they, went, they offer to deliver town water to you if you were prepared to install a cistern. Is that not a good short-term solution, Manuel? No, it wasn't, Patty. Uh, the MHA for the district of Donavesto recommended putting tubs out in the man's garage, which he'd have to heat it, and uh, the fire department would fill it up every 10 days. So that, to me, uh, wasn't a good thing to do because, for health reasons, uh, something getting in it. So that's for a tell. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, Patty, you know, the money was there with the gas tax. The government already told us. But apparently this family don't apply to the gas tax. So uh, they got together, I guess, and, uh, and they made up their minds. And uh, I'm fed up with it, Patty. And I will make a statement, though, in the new year on the way I feel and what did happen and uh, why it happened. And right now, Patty, I wish them all a Merry Christmas, and I hope they all got water in their taps. So the, the, you're not happy with the water quality in the well. And, of course, the town has no control over private wells. They don't even have the information about private wells under the access to the provincial data. So I don't know where this one lands. But if the well, capital applications are going to take time to be approved and consequently time for the extension to the community water system and the offer to deliver town water to you and put it in a water tank until all this gets done, and you don't see that as a, a reasonable short-term solution. No, because there's a coal eye in the well, and in order to get water to them now and condemn the oil well, uh, I think it was a conflict of interest, Patty, and a conflict of interest with the town and a conflict of interest with the MHA for the district. How so? And, uh, well, for, for one thing, uh, they should be, uh, certain people on council should excuse themselves from this because they're related to to the lady that is involved. And as far as the MHA goes, he's the former mayor of the town of Georgia Brook, and, uh, and he helped form the council. And when I went to him, he said he wasn't going against the council. That's fine. So that put it all petty in a conflict of interest. And I can't sugarcoat it. I mean, I got told the way it is. And it was almost like to me, uh, as uh, you know, without prejudice, it was a conspiracy to not ha- not not help. And uh, I'm shamed, Patty. I, I'm fed up. I'm shamed to live in our town. I was born and raised there, right? But the way our town is run, and the way that those people are making their own rules, this is not the government's fault. The government, even even the federal government, told me they would support Indian came to Ottawa to help that family. But it's not the government's fault. It's the rules of the town. The town made their own rule. And to say they got insufficient funds, Patty, I don't believe it. We only needed $3,000 to pay for the digger at the end. That's what I brought it down to. Not buying the pipe. The family offered to buy the pipe. 
and we asked the town to dig cover to excavate of $3,000 for the excavate. I got it down from 28000 to to, to 7000 to 3000 I don't think our town is that bad off. If we are, then they should declare bankruptcy and write it off and start new. I don't believe it, that It's just not possible. Now, I sent an email to the town, and I asked the town to provide the minutes of the last meeting, and I asked them to provide the status of the bank account at the time. So I just started telling me more, Patty. I appreciate the time and the update here this morning, uh, Manuel. Thank you. But Randy, uh, Patty, that water is going hidden to Rogers Brook now, that line. I'm hoping, though, before you go, I'm hoping they're going to support us and make on to the curse stop that they already own. I'm, I would imagine I'll get some feedback from the town again after this call, but I appreciate your time, Manuel. After the break, I go. Stay in touch. Well, yeah, take care, and you have a, and I hope I wish them all a Merry Christmas, and I hope she has water in your taps for Christmas. Thank you, Manuel. Take care, now. You too. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number uh, one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. Hi, I just want to call and make a comment on the lady who called in that had that she had children from the music uh, studio going to the seniors' home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things I worked uh, in long-term care for over twenty years, and that's one of the things that the residents really look forward to during Christmas time, where children's groups coming in, whether they were uh, older children or brownies or guys, everybody looked forward to the children coming in. And uh, I just want to say what a great thing they're doing. So I'm a first-time caller and very nervous, but I think I'll be okay. I think you're doing just fine. So you say you were an employee at one of these homes? Yes, I was, yeah, over 20 years. Over 20 years. Where was it? Do you mind saying? Uh, Actually, Masonic Park. It's closed now. Yeah, closed Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the residents and the staff will be tickled pink to get a visit from Dynamic. They actually heard the conversation I had with Annette earlier and sent us a note on Twitter uh, thank oh. you, thanking us for the shout-out, so to speak. And look, they right, deserve yeah. it because, you know, yeah. it's one thing to put off a concert and your family and your friends show up and they watch you, but compare that to the smiles they're going to put on the faces of the seniors and the staff at these 10 long-term care facilities. I think it's brilliant what they're doing. Bravo. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things that they look forward to was the uh, pet visits. When dogs would come in and kitty cats, uh, that really brightened their days as well. Especially those that had had pets before they came into the home. No doubt. There's a calming... There's a common issue associated with, you know, having a dog or a cat around. We exactly. haven't had a dog in a while. Our, our, when our dog died, it kind of hit everyone really hard, so people didn't want to go yeah. back down that road. And sure. now there's a neighborhood cat that the whole family's really latched onto. We made a little bed outside for him and the whole bit, yeah. so I know exactly where you're coming from, and I'm glad yeah, they're doing yeah. it. How, how's your retirement okay. going? Oh, great. <laughs> oh, yeah? I, don't, I love it. <laughs> this thing ever. No doubt. Uh, one and, of these days, I might be able to retire. Uh, oh, you will. You will. It's down the road for you. <laughs> yeah, down the road a little ways yet. <laughs> anyway, that's all I had to say. I'm just I'm glad I called in. I'm glad you called as well. Merry okay. Christmas to you. Thank you. You too, Patty. Okay, Bye-bye. thanks. Bye-bye. 
and you know, I, I do think those stories are terrific, right? And you'll get some video coming from these performances and the interaction with the residents, and it's going to be all chock full of smiles. The other one that comes to mind every time I hear these types of stories, and I think this is a terrific exercise. I don't know how many classes were involved in this, but what they would do is that the entire class would uh, either write a letter to one of the residents and it'd be distributed by the staff there and consequently they set up a bit of a pen pal issue and so that's also brilliant then there was another class took it a step further that they went in and asked seniors about their youth and the things they did and the jobs they had and the life experiences that they were wanting to share and consequently the seniors were asking the youngsters about the exact same thing so I do think you know not only has the world changed dramatically but I'm not so sure people have a firm understanding as young people as to exactly what life was like for their nanopop and for people of their nanopop's age. So those are a great exercise. When you talk about what we're hoping to teach children and what we're hoping that they learn, it really does need to come with a dollop of exactly what kind of history that their parents and their grandparents share with other people in the community, and that's a good way to get it. You know, it's your, your nanopop may have had a vastly different life than someone who they're going to meet at whether it be the former Masonic Park or anywhere else. So those are really great initiatives. And especially this time of year, I don't know how many classes and or music groups or dialogue, or pardon me, uh, Carol Graham people are doing these types of things. But you know full well it's going to be absolutely top quality experience for the staff and the residents. Okay, let's see here. Uh, being asked, you know, well, one suggestion via email is that, you know, how can we don't talk about the privatization of healthcare? <laughs> couple things number one yes we do and number two if you want to bring up a topic i mean that's all you have to do is use call speak with david get in the queue and we can talk about anything under the sun and privatization of healthcare. and there's long been some private aspects of healthcare, but it is growing and people would like to know where does it end and whether or not we're better off because of it you know if you talk about things that freeze up some opportunities for people who are on a wait list to get their knee replaced or their hips replaced you know, maybe, just maybe, as long as it's not a full contravention of the Canada Health Act, that for the muckety-mucks to get out of the public queue, put their $25,000 down, get their knee done, and away they go. And then consequently, I'm bumped up the list. But that's different than things like the uh, virtual care contract that was let. It's different than phone med service. It's certainly different than companies like the Compass Group. So to insinuate that we haven't talked about privatization of healthcare on the show is a bit rich. But, of course, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And in that world, and here's where I'm really struggling, because when asked about the presence of travel agency nurses, and we're not entirely sure exactly how many are on the payroll now, we can talk about the money's being spent, but I don't know if we have a real firm breakdown. There was one offered regarding the most of these travel nurses are in Central, the fewest are in uh, Western. And it's coming at a significant cost. You know, over the course of 12 months, about $18 million for travel nurses versus about $4 million for nurses working in the public system on the public payroll. Then it's the issue of who gets offered the overtime shifts, which is really quite bizarre. Now, I suppose when the nurses' union and individual nurses were talking about how they were overwhelmed and the work-life balance and being forced to take extra shifts, at some point, I suppose, the health authority simply said, well, we've heard... And so we'll offer the overtime shift to a travel agency nurse. But then, of course, you really do, as a union group, have to speak for the concept of who gets what when. And so there's a lot of really strange things there. When asked about the travel agency nurses, the government says, well, quote, unquote, it's a necessary evil. I know that's kind of a tricky and a clumsy phrase to use in this uh, circumstance. But even with the recruitment le levels that we have been told, 
it doesn't look like there's going to be travel agency nurses going away. I've suggested this in the past just to be told it won't work, but there's no reason why I can't or shouldn't, is if you're working for the public system, and let's say a travel agency or a nursing agency approaches you and say, hey, all right, ma'am or sir, you can come work for us, make more, maybe double, and be able to have more flexibility with your own scheduling, of course people are going to jump at that opportunity. I would do the exact same thing if someone called me and said, hey, you can, instead of three hours, you only do an hour and a half, and I'll pay you double, where do I sign? But there is the potential to include what's absolutely part of my contract is the non-compete. Like, I can't just quit and go work at another media outlet for at least 12 months. Maybe, just maybe, and people will talk about whether or not it's enforceable, but I think it's a good place to start with the requirement when hired by the public and the NL Health Services, there's a non-compete in place so that you don't end up in short order becoming part of the travel agency nurse and the whopping big sums that are being charged by those agencies. Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Okay. How about you? <clears throat> Not too bad, I suppose. Boy, I'm getting over a bit of a flu, but uh, I'm on demand. Um... Paddy, uh, before I get to what I, I guess I really want to talk about, I, I, I heard you talking about uh, privatization of healthcare there just before you went to break there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've listened, you know, for the last number of uh, weeks, I guess, and months to uh, to Mike and the concerns that he's raised uh, about Compass Group, I guess, in particular. Uh, and, and I've spoke to him on the phone. He sent me lots of emails as well as, uh, I guess, all other members of, of the House Assembly. Uh, you know, this kind of speaks to an issue that I've raised uh, a number of times in the past that we've talked about. Uh, and it's the fact that when we go through our budgetary processes in the House Assembly, and particularly we go through estimates, it's a line-by-line examination of uh, the expenditure of government. But... When we go to the Department of Health as an example, and I've used this analogy uh, before, and, and because it's actually it's accurate, uh, we'll question uh, how much uh, photocopying is being done uh, in the Office of the Minister of Health compared this year to next year and say, why did you spend an extra $1,000 on photocopies or why did you spend an extra $1,000 on uh, office furniture in, uh, in your department? while at the same time we'll pass over billions of dollars transferred to the healthcare authorities and uh, money spent on, uh, you know, uh, companies such as, not just Compass, but other ones and these traveling nurses and everything else, and there's zero questioning, there's zero budget lines really, just one big transfer and no ability to question it. So that's why I have been for the last number of years uh, calling on the government to put in a process where we could start delving into the weeds in agencies, boards, commissions, healthcare authorities, look at their budget, start questioning exactly what the money is being spent on, which currently we're not doing. Now, the Minister of Finance a couple of years ago stood up in the House of Assembly and said, well, the member from Outpro Southlands will be very pleased to hear that we're going to put this in place, but she never did. Uh, that's something that needs to happen. But in the interim, one thing I will be doing uh, I would say to Mike, uh, uh, I did contact the Auditor General, uh, and they told me that the information they had wasn't actionable by their office. So uh, one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to write the um, Public Accounts uh, Committee. I'm going to do that today. 
uh, of the House Assembly and ask them if they can have a look into the contract with the Compass Group and see if that's something they're willing to uh, take on. There is a process where they can do that type of thing because it is public money. And uh, let's put this to rest once and for all, you know, as to whether money is being spent in the appropriate way and if we're getting our best value for money. I'm back and forth with Mike all the time. <clears throat> yep. So what is it that you actually wanted to talk about today? Anyway, um, I, I did just want to, uh, I actually wanted to have a, just a lighter topic, I guess. And it's the fact that, because uh, this will be my last call between now and Christmas. So I just wanted to uh, say, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out to, to my office. Uh, I know that my colleague Lucy Stoyles in Mount Pearl North has as well. Uh, people who are really struggling this time of year with Christmas and, and so on. Um, you know, so, you know, we have a quite the demand, certainly across the province, but Mount Pearl is not excluded from that. But I just want to put a, a, a shout out in the bouquet to the groups in Mount Pearl that are really working so hard to meet the need. We have two food banks uh, in our community, uh, St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, we have uh, a food bank uh, with Salvation Army as well. So that's three in total all run by volunteers. They're doing great work all year long, and certainly they've been doing great work in terms of getting the Christmas hampers uh, out the door. I want to thank, certainly want to thank them. Uh, we have the Park Avenue Pentecostal Church, who provides a free clothing market in our community. We have Scott Hillier uh, with Coffee Matters, uh, working with the churches in our community that regularly put out community suppers for, uh, for, for those in need. We have little pantries, Cindy Hall up at the Mount Pearl Library. Uh, she looks after six um, uh, little pantries throughout the community uh, to provide, you know, food for uh, people who need it. Uh, the, the Dave and Chantel Keen over on Whitley Drive, they have one, and uh, the Church of the Good Shepherd has one as well. So, you know, there's a lot of good stuff happening. Uh, there's a lot of people responding to the need, and I know there's a ton of groups or organizations this week alone uh, this past week, I've seen the Mount Pearl Lions Club, the Kinsmen, the Kinnets, the, the Knights of Columbus, even our, our, our men's slow-pitched uh, softball league, dirt league. So many organizations uh, coming with doing food drives and writing checks, all the schools uh, to help people in our community. So, you know, again, while there is a, a need and it can sometimes be, you know, a little bit depressing when you when you think about all the people that are struggling, Thankfully, I can say uh, in Mount Pearl for sure, we have a tremendous volunteer community, a lot of people with big hearts that are working together to meet that need. And I want to thank them all uh, very much for what they're doing. And finally, just to wish them, all my constituents, and you and those at BOCM, I said, Patty, in the past, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to get my voice out through your show. And we've had some great conversations on numerous topics uh, over the year and I certainly look forward to doing that again in the new year and uh, Merry Christmas to you all the folks at VOCM and, and certainly to you and your family and to all the listeners have a great day the very same to you Paul thanks a lot thank you Patty Take very care. much alright bye bye it's Paul Lane independent member Mount Pearl Southlands just to drive the point home I mean food banks were a one off a temporary solution which has become a permanent feature regarding food security and insecurity in the country. The most recent report from Food Bank Canada, they've been collecting the data since 1989. In March of 2023, 1.9 million Canadians went to a food bank. 
1.9 million Canadians. The percentage increase from March of 2022, 32%. The percentage increase from March of 2019, 78.5%. And we know all the contributing factors, the higher interest rates, the very stubborn food inflation, just increased costs, the shrinkflation that we're experiencing. And people will add in, you know, what the grocery giants are doing. But on that front, you know, the whole conversation about the federal government trying or having or wanting or being suggested they do something about controlling the price of food, it doesn't end up working out for Canadians. It just doesn't. You know, the whole thought that the the CEOs will be called in front of parliamentary committees and told to stabilize the prices of food, when if you look throughout their revenue streams, the prices and the margins on the food is, hasn't really changed a whole lot. You know, when we talk about the, uh, the margins and the profits associated with pharmaceuticals and clothes and uh, a variety of other lines that they have inside their stores, but, I mean, every little contributing factor is a reason why it's scary to go to the grocery score, store sometimes, isn't it? Anyway, let's keep rolling. Uh, let's go to line number three. Tony, around the air. Tony. And Tony's waiting for the delay to kick in. And Tony, you are on the Good morning, air. Patty. Good morning. How are you today, sir? Not too bad. How about you? Oh, well, a little bit depressed right now, sir, to be honest with you. What's happening? Well, I have a son that's profoundly deaf. I phoned you about this before. He's profoundly deaf, and he got a mental problem. And he never had a mental problem until he got beat up 22 years ago by a bunch of men from Money Pond. But after that, he was like uh, going to the doctor down in Waterford. He's like, his, his life changed. He went like a light going off and on. One minute, one minute he could be fine. The next minute, he's, uh, the demons are telling him to do stuff, right? Anyway, go back in May, and he had an episode. And he come after me, and he should be trying to beat me up. And batting out to the Waterford, out to the house. The police officers came, sorry. Hated myself. The police officers came, and they we took him out to the Saint, uh, Health Science. Put in the signs. He was there for six weeks, and he ever not. And one day, and we were going out and seeing him every day to see how he's doing into the psychiatric ward out there. And anyway, this Thursday we phones out and see how he was doing. And uh, one of the nurses, oh, he's so fine. He's up in the common area with everybody else. Five minutes after, we gets a phone call from the uh, urban gas station and came out road. He was out there with his pajamas on. Now, what kind of health system we got out there to let a man that's mentally ill to supposed to be locked up out there? They couldn't answer it. Anyway, they let him out six weeks after, and uh, they never done nothing for him. They actually, one of the security guards is going to charge him for something, which we don't know what it is. Then in July the 28th, he took sick again, and he came after me, and this time I got my arm broke in three places. Went down to the water for, for two months. The doctors down there would say, I don't know what I'm going to get. They never done nothing for him. And now... This just said he, he got sick again. They let after two months. He let out, and he never know nothing. Changed his pills, giving him drugs and whatnot. They let out Saturday. He went down Saturday. After six hours, with my wife down there worrying about him, and he come after me again. And I can't do it when my arm broke. The doctor gave him the pill and sent him home. Now, what what kind, what kind of health system have we got? So, as opposed to give him some medication and send him home, was there a need for him to be hospitalized? He should have been operated because when he gets upset, he looks at me and I'm, I, he thinks I'm the person that uh, that uh, that beat him up. But it wasn't. But he was in the hospital, sir, 
down there for six hours with my wife. He, 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 he took every bit of his clothes off. He wanted to walk out through the door, which he did before when they let him in, and let him out. Uh, he got out and got in. He, he wanted to, to uh, he told the doctor with an interpreter, God bless the interpreter, the demons was telling me to do this, the demons was telling me to do this, to do whatever. But the doctor, always oh, okay, give him a pill for his headache because his head was pain. We'd tell him, give him a pill and let him out. And my wife got that mad. She said, get that foreign doctor away from me because he was a foreign doctor from another country. And, yeah, and for the, after six hours, it, it's out of this world that that, that would happen. Was, what, in your opinion, was the reason? I mean, you're, you're a concerned parent. I mean, everyone understands that. But yeah. why should he have been hospitalized? Because of your worries? Or was there some, simply because something? He, he beats me up when he comes here. He always wants to try and kill me. And besides that, go back. I'm going to go back now. Before uh, I'll go back when Danny Williams closed the deaf school, he closed down that deaf school for no reason, and not for no reason at all, in my opinion. And then when when the elections come up and the, the Dwight Bar was going into power, Mr. Cody came into my door, came in here for 45 minutes talking to me, and I asked her if she can do something and get the deaf school open for all of the deaf children in Newfoundland, not just my own son, because there's no place in Newfoundland for the hearing impaired families to go. And if there was a, uh, a community like up in Ontario, they got a place called the John Robout Center, and that's where a, parent, a child got, got a mental problem and he's profoundly deaf. He can go there and get help, and all the doctors and nurses and psychiatrists know sign language. Not one doctor in Newfoundland, not one nurse in Newfoundland knows sign language. We always got to get an interpreter, and there's a three-way talking, Tony talking to interpreter, interpreter telling the doctor. And, the doc- and every deaf person gets frustrated with, with that reason. Our government of Newfoundland is neglecting every deaf child in Newfoundland and Canada, or Newfoundland and Labrador, because Mr. Churchill's son, look what happened to him. And I know his families in Newfoundland that lift this province with their deaf child has gone to Halifax and gone to Toronto so they wouldn't be separated from the child. And when my, school, my son was in school, before he beat, got beat up, he finished his grade 12. He's out of mechanic and worked with collision clinic. But with that, when he got beat up, that changed everything in his life 22 years ago. And right now, for our government of Fury, Mr. Fury, as a doctor himself, he should be there right on the bandwagon, holding up that school for the diff, for every diff child from here in Labrador. I used to have anywhere between six and seven, six and eight boys and girls in my house every single weekend so they'd have a place of a family orientation because they couldn't go home to Appleton, they couldn't go to Labrador, they couldn't go to go to Brook, but just to get out of school for the weekend, they'd come here. And what did Mr. Danny Williams and Darren King do? It was all a farce, they said, for inclusion. No deaf child that's, that's profoundly deaf could be in the son of a class with 32 children and here uh, to get any education. My son was in the class with a teacher and four other deaf children like himself. And if we, right now, Mr. Ladivar school teachers are retired, well, since he closed school, but uh, I don't know, I say there's... 400 deaf children right now in Newfoundland with different different uh, forms of educa- uh, deafness, profoundly, moderate, or severely, but they haven't got one place to go. Now, one time they used to go up to the village. Now they don't even go up there no more. So the, Tony and my interpreter there for Saturday, Tony is very lonely, and he's after going to 22 different places where the deaf fat, fat people are lonely. they got nobody to talk to. And that's not like me. I'm talking to you. Thank Jesus for that. But Tony is up there in his apartment, and the demons is to tell him to do stuff. And if he does something out of the way, only can blame our government and nobody else. I'm sorry about this, sir, on Christmas putting it on you, but putting it on Newfoundland. But if Mrs. Cody kept her word, she would have spoke for the, up for the diff school, and she never done one single thing. And if Mr. Uh, Tony Wakeham 
or whoever's running for the PCs or whoever's going death hit or whoever's running the NDP, if they want my vote or any every Newfoundland person that got a diff job, if they want the vote of my, my vote, open up the school for the diff and drop all the taxes that they're putting on us. Sorry about that, sir, but please you have a happy Christmas. Take care of yourself, Tony. Okay, sorry I never gave you a chance. Nope. I, I apologize for that. That's okay. We're nope. not asking questions. Sorry. My son is going to come down here today. Understood. Out, and if he comes down here today, the first thing i got to do is call the police officers because the same plan. The man came here Saturday. It's his sixth time coming here this year uh, because my son wants to be. He's after hit me a hundred times, knocked me in the job, banging me in the head. And when, it, when he broke my arm in July... He got up and sat down there and spoke. He didn't even know he'd done it. And their doctor says, a psychiatrist was down the water and said, he's not meant to heal. And if I had my time back, I would have went out there signs and got somebody fired out there for letting a diff kid up to, uh, walk up to, uh, up the road, cut out of here with pajamas on. Now, what kind of staff have you got out there signs? And Mr. Fury, or here at the hospital, if he hears this, do some investigations. Thank you, sir. Take care, Tony. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Merry best. Christmas. You too, bye-bye. Uh, Repeatedly being asked about the national dentistry, and I mean, that's sad state of affairs for Tony. I feel bad for his family. And inside the world of national dental care, and of course, still com- some confusion about how it's going to work. You know, the portal should be open maybe this week for folks 87 years and older, which is a strange arbitrary number to select to begin the program. But one of the questions, now that we have some detail about how it's going to work and some 9 million Canadians that are going to be impacted and be able to get some dental care, is how much per year will you be able to spend on dental care? That, it's a good question, but there's no number out there as of yet. So while some of the enrollment issues are being worked on, when there's going to be issues regarding a, a ceiling for how much being able, you're able to have spent on your dental health in the course of one year, we will try to find out, but at this moment in time, there is no dollar amount that's been set. So as we try to figure it all out, we'll just have to wait for the feds to fill in the blanks. All right, let's take a break. Tomorrow, this morning's a good opportunity to get on the show. If you're in and around town, 709-5-9-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Well, welcome back to the show. So a basic question asked via email during the break is the biggest question for me, that's the emailer, is why that more people have found it necessary to go to the food banks. I mean, not to be saucy, but folks who were just barely making ends meet before the food inflation issues kicked in and the amount to service their debt has gone up because of the increased interest rate and everything under the sun is more expensive. If you were just barely making making ends meet or scraping by in 2019 and not having to go to the food bank... It just stands to reason, given all of the inflationary pressures, cost of living issues, the price of groceries, that more and more people, just based on all of those aforementioned concerns, are forced to go to the food bank. Which brings me to the issue in the report that was uh, released last week from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And yes, they very much are a left-leaning think tank, just like the Fraser Institute would, yes, be very much a right-leaning think tank. So let's just use the numbers for context. And regardless of recommendations coming from that particular report... Here's what they said. Now, remember, when the fight for $15 an hour for the minimum wage, that began like a decade ago. And so a decade ago, 15 bucks an hour is a vastly different amount of money coming in the door versus today. 
So when they did an evaluation of just the minimum expenses for a year, basically living space and food and some other necessities of life, versus the minimum wage of $15, and of course minimum wage always intended to be an entry-level wage, was never really established to be a living wage, but here's how much they found, how much money they found out would actually be required to do the bare minimum, which does not include anything to service your debt, and on the Canadian average, for every dollar in, Canadians are spending $1.83 to service their debt, which is a mind-boggling upside down number. Nor does it include providing any monies for your retirement, which I think is going to jump up and bite us in the tail here in the next decade or so, because the way that people were able to provide for their retirement to work for one company for the 35 years after graduation, and of course a full, well-established pension, that's changing. Even the former pensions is changing. So here's what they found out. In eastern Newfoundland, what you need for the very basics would be $24.20 uh, per hour. On the northern peninsula of Labrador, $26.80. Minimum wage, of course, at in Labrador, of course, it's transportation-related matters, by and large, as to why that number is the way it is. Even though a home would be less expensive, maybe rent would be on par with living in the city of St. John's. But in the world of transportation, you know, I do think that this is not necessarily about the amount of money being paid to somebody. It's the lack of attention to the policies that were brought forward to control costs in Labrador. The Airlift Subsidy and Nutrition North, they were both tailored for exactly that reason. But when you see pictures coming from Labrador in particular, and certainly other more rural, isolated parts of the province, it's the prices of the basics based on transportation that are getting absolutely pummeled. So what do we, what's the takeaway here? They have a bunch of recommendations on how this can be, you know, money being redistributed, which is a real rally cry on one part of the political spectrum. But regardless of who you vote for, regardless of what your ideologies are that you follow societally, emotionally, financially, and politically, when people are unable to make ends meet, it comes out of cost to us all. It, it simply does. And you can just say, you know, people have to work hard and get out there and get out of your own way. And, you know, we've got to stop spending other people's money because, as Margaret Thatcher said, eventually that money runs out. Regardless of all of those, if you are not able to eat properly, if you're not able to pay your bills, keep your home warm, there is a cost to all of us. Number one, with the healthcare system. And don't take it from me. Take it to the folks who did all the work, whether it be uh, Dr. Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis and all of the subcommittees that they had. I think throughout the entire gamut of those uh, meetings that took place and consultations and Q&A sessions, we now have a very clear understanding that healthcare is as expensive as it is because we have not done enough to uh, attach focus to the social determinants of health. Who you are, where you are, man or woman, the level of education, the amount of money you have coming in the door, and another couple of uh, issues that they refer to as a social determinant of health. If those numbers are growing, and they are, then the map has been very clear. The line has been very straight between that and the, the expanded uh, amount of money spent on healthcare. About $4 billion in out of a budget of $9 billion in a province with somewhere around, what, 530,000 people? So that living wage report, I'm not really sure what the takeaway is and how we attend to it, but it would be nice. Now, I don't know what the stall is in the unanimous vote amongst 40 of the MHAs regarding striking the committee looking at the two, the notables, the basic income and or the guaranteed income. They are different. They come with different features and different incentives to have people out actively pursuing and working and trying to keep the wolf away from the, their door based on their own efforts, which brings me to what I've called as a success, and that was questioned by a listener and a caller there last week, maybe, and I've called the Employment Stabilization Program a success. Why? 
because for very small amounts of money at the beginning of the year and was only a part of project here in this region 170 people who are on social assistance participated in this stabilization program and some nine months later 40 no longer needed social assistance they were working and the the supports and the incentives were minimal Talking about a preparation fund went from $125 to $250 to get the work boots or whatever else you need, you know, a couple of nice shirts or what have you to get into the job that you, uh, you found. And then there was uh, incentives over the course of uh, six months, a year, and two years if you remain working. So if 40 out of 170 in the course of nine months... I think it's a, a success. The caller, I believe his name is George. He wanted more information, the kind of jobs they were doing. But if the job you were doing had an income that was meant you were no longer eligible for, for social assistance, and of course when you begin to work or re-enter the workforce, then it's the opportunity to move up the ladder, you know, to maybe find, to pad your resume, so that maybe the next best job that you can find, that may indeed pay more, or something that's much more uh, in your wheelhouse, without a resume with some work experience, then moving on to the next job is pretty flimsy stuff. So, uh, you know, that's some of the evaluation that was done for this report. Anyway, so Mark is asking about a living wage. Is this based on a single person or a couple? It's based on an individual, right? And inside the affordability and or the healthy food basket, those numbers are based on, uh, pardon me, no, it's based on a family. It's uh, an adult male, an adult female, a preteen son and a teenage daughter, I believe was the way that makeup of that so-called family of four. But yeah, it's coming more and more difficult to pay the bills and to afford the groceries and pay your insurance and all the rest of it. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Dale on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Mike, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Doing okay. How about you? Pretty good, sir. Good. I just wanted to call in about, uh, I even just heard on the news about uh, intersections that have so many accidents or prime places for having accidents and stuff in the city and everything. My call is to do with the panhandlers, I guess, if you want to call them, uh, in those intersections. You see them there all the time. They're on LA Road. They're on Kelsey Drive and stuff in the medium and stuff going back and forth, I think, myself. Like, I don't know the store beyond those people. I'm sure they're there, like, to get a few dollars for whatever reason. I just don't think they should be where they're at because it's such a distraction. And for places like that, for accents to be known and everything else, I think the city and uh, the police should uh, seriously look into that and have those people, like, move somewhere else. I've been different stores in the city, whether it was Piper's dollar store, you see people there like on side step or on just to the one side step or whatever, you know, with the cops or whatever. At least those people are in the safe area. I understand where you're coming from because there's a couple of notable downtown intersections where they hop out as soon as people start to slow down for a yellow or a red light, and they're out in traffic. It just makes me nervous. I mean, I have no problem trying to help them if and when I can, but there are some pretty dangerous spots. The fellow that is on here on the corner of Kelsey, 
it was one day last week I can't remember what day it was and I just don't know if he was paying attention but he turned around very quickly he usually walks up and down that uh, piece yeah. of uh, pavement or concrete but he just pivoted very quickly and I don't even think he realized that we were now all turning left right towards him and I was on the inside lane I was very very close to him my uh, side view mirror could not have been more than five inches or six inches from him so I get it you know people some maybe have a real problem with panhandlers period but your safety concern I think is legit there's a story where a fella struck one of the panhandlers downtown I think it was right in front of city hall that one red light there where people can pause it for the uh, crosswalk so there's there's something to it I don't know what you do because if you ask them to move somewhere else what's to say that they won't come back to where they just were and you know we're not going to be able to arrest them or do anything like that but I understand your summary point that sometimes they feel like they're in an unsafe spot Absolutely, Patty. And like you said, especially there on L.A. Road where so many accidents have to happen. I mean, what's it going to take for an accident to happen? If we were to say it, a person like that that's there trying to gather a couple dollars that's going to end up probably get killed. Or again, for that person to distract traffic, going back and forth and cause somebody else to have a serious injury. I just feel myself between the city and the police. They should be monitoring those places. And if they continuously come back, once they get them or, you know, see them several times, then take them aside or do what they got to do and say, if they're back, well, then I don't think they want to go to jail or even spend a day in jail. If it means keeping them out of those places, that's, like I said, eventually it's going to cause somebody else to get killed or, or cause an, or more accidents. And nor do I think it's there. a crime. It's just a general concern. Yes, absolutely. Mike, I appreciate you making absolutely. time for the show. All right, Patty. Have a good Christmas. You too. All the best, Mike. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. You now, some people have a, just a built-in problem with the panhandlers and you see a lot of them around where I do my grocery shopping for the most part there's generally uh, a man who sits out front and every now and then you'll see someone who will bring out a gift card or something for him and then you walk down and there's someone sitting outside for instance the liquor store in that same complex they're not in harm's way and they're not aggressive and they're not yelling at you and they're not getting in your face they're just there looking for some help whether or not you give it to them is up to you but there are some of these intersections where it's not it doesn't make Mike or anyone else a bad person to say that sometimes it feels like there's a bit of a safety concern there. Anyway, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two. Glenn, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Yeah, I, I just want to say off I, I like your program. I also like the intelligent and sensitive way you handle your callers. And I'm also impressed by your, your the, the wealth of knowledge that you can access for your callers. And I, I know so. when you take... Yeah, I want to set up front... Because I'm going to be critical for a moment, okay? No problem. I, I'm, I was I was bothered by the way you handled Colin's call. I am um, pleased that there's been arrest in the case of uh, the woman Penny in St. Anthony. We don't know the outcome of that yet, of course. So I was surprised that in legal matters, language does matter. So I agree with Colin that the RCMP's language was significantly and faulty. To state that they have evidence to convict him of murder overstates the fact a judge has to decide that in a preliminary. And the judge conceivably could say there's not enough evidence to go to trial. That's possible. So they're overstating their case. Maybe they were eager to to get that out and pleased with their work, which they're, they're entitled to, of course. And then also to say that this is a case of intimate partner violence. We don't know yet, even if Mrs. Penny is dead, her body hasn't been found. No intimate partner has been convicted of murder, so they're overstating the case that this is a case of intimate 
partner of violence. There's, they have no evidence. They, they may have evidence, but the evidence not not have been tested. So you seem to dismiss it and say there's going to be a jury anyway. Well, there might be or there might not. And it's like saying, Patty, that someone came into my home without a warrant, saying there's cocaine there. They found the cocaine. And then they say it was okay to come in. It's not okay for the police to use language that's not sufficiently precise. I'm not being picky here. I think Colin is quite right. They have to be careful about that. And they're, they're wrong in both those those statements that he draws attention to. So that's what I'm, I'm calling you to challenge you on that, of course. No problem. Uh, so my thoughts. Uh, when the RCMP say they have sufficient evidence, they could have said that or nothing, and it will eventually be adjudicated by a judge. So that's the point, is that whether or not it's sufficient, we haven't even arrived at a point where that's going to be uh, established as a real statement or an overreach. So that's all I thought on that one. And inside the world of intimate partner violence, when there is a couple in the middle of separating from each other, then she's going over to his house the last time she was seen, and I don't know if she's murdered or not, but the police seem to think so, given the fact that a first-degree murder charge, which is all about intent and a plan to actually kill her, so think or so say the RCMP. So that's all I thought, is that regardless of what that police inspector said yesterday, whether or not there's sufficient evidence is yet to be determined. Right? Yeah, but but they shouldn't be using that language. You see, they shouldn't be using because all they can say they got they got uh, uh, sufficient evidence to go forward with it. That's what they have the evidence for. It has to be tested, and they can't, they're not the testers. No, they're not. So so it's 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 I don't know it's reckless. It's over. It's it's inappropriate for them to say that. And we don't know whether there's intimate partner violence. We don't know that. You don't know that. If she's dead, then if if if, if she's dead, but we don't know that. For them to say they said that this is a case of intimate partner violence, they don't know that. That they can't say that. I don't know that, you don't know that, they don't. Would you agree on that? Well, if they think they have a reasonable uh, case to charge this man with first-degree murder, then wouldn't it just by definition be inter-partner gender-based violence? We don't know that yet. Well, they laid a first-degree murder charge, so they think that she's dead. Based on what we don't know, and it hasn't been test-driven in front of a court, I agree, and you're 100% right. But if she's dead, then it is by definition exactly that. But we don't know that yet. So they can't say that this is a case of intimate partner violence because we don't know that. It might not be. It might not be, Patty. The only way it wouldn't be is if she's not dead. That's, that's not true. Someone else could have murdered her. We don't know that either, see? We don't know that. You can't say that. She could have been murdered by someone else. We don't know that. If Dean Penny murdered Jennifer Hillier Penny... Uh, no, I'm, if he murdered I said, we don't know that no, he of murdered course, her. So. Of course we don't. Nobody knows until it goes makes its way through the courts. I mean, no one's arguing that point. But they said this is, this is a case of intimate partner violence. We don't know that. Yes, because they think he killed her. That's true. That's true. It so could be that case. But they didn't say it could be. See, they're, they're not being cautious enough. And language is important. You can get in trouble in law for using language that's inappropriate. You know that, of course. I never tell you that. I do know that. Yeah. So I, 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 I invite you to think about it a little more, that's all. <laughs> no worries. And let me say this for the record for you and for anybody else. Anyone can feel free to challenge me about what I say or what I think on any subject under the sun. It, it, it's perfectly fine with me, and it's fair ball, and it's fair game. It's part of sitting in this chair, and it's not, I don't take it personal, and I'm, I appreciate you making time for the program this morning.
I know, Pat, you don't take it personally. I know that my I, I wouldn't have called if I thought it was going to offend you. No, and, and, and it did not in the least. It's just thought-provoking conversations, which I enjoy. Yeah, I know, and I know, I know, I, 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 I invite you to review that section of the call today and, and reflect on it a little more, that's all. I can remember, I can recall it verbatim. Okay, I know you got a good memory. Okay, <laughs> take care. Okay, Glenn, take care of yourself. All right, Bye-bye. there we go. Uh, yeah, words are important. Language is important. There's no question. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, Alan wants to talk about dangerous intersections, and then we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Alan, you're on the air. Hey, good day. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? Oh, not bad. I got away in this intersection. This city council, yeah, they're, they're, they don't know what the hell they're doing now. They're, are they still talking about putting that roundabout up on airport lights, you know? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because, you know something, if they push that in, they should be all hanging their head in shame and resign or vote vote. The problem with the intersection, main problem with the intersections, um, if you're making a left-hand turn, I'm going to use that Portugal Road now as an example. If you're making a left-hand turn going down Major's Path, and I'm making a left-hand turn going in the airport heights, I'm looking down your driver's side, you're looking down my driver's side. Simple solution, move, interest, move that turn lane over five feet, both turn lanes, and then you're looking down the job, passenger side of the car, up down, looking down your passenger side, and you can see cars coming. The problem is, you can't see nothing coming because the road, you, your vision is blocked. And if they think they can't see that, well, they should all resign, every one of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I know the intersection. I can picture it in my mind's eye here. I know exactly what you're saying. So let me just try and picture widening it. Because it would have to be both ways. Yeah, we have just move, move each one five feet yeah. to the left. Is that something that could be done? Uh, up there they can, because they got the medium there, right? You, you can make it with a space for that medium on both sides. Now, any place with no medium or just a straight line, well, that's going to be a little bit more challenging. But there's lots of intersections in town like it, and it can be quite easily moved over. Just move it to the left five feet, both turn lanes, and then you're making a left-hand turn, and you can see anything coming down on the other side of the car, because you're looking down the passenger side of the car, not the driver's side of the car across from you, right? Yeah, it, that's a particularly wickedly dangerous intersection. I think it's the most dangerous intersection in the city. Yeah, well, the hustle is it. Between high speeds, and you can't see nothing coming, you take your chances, pulls out, and you get clobbered. Yeah, I think the same thing right. about the intersection on the parkway right there at the Arts and Culture Center. That one gives me yep. creeps when I try to make a left there as well. Yep, so, just came down through there. Point taken, but let me ask mm-hmm. you, why do you think a roundabout would be a bad idea? I mean, even if what you're suggesting is easier, but roundabouts, I think we've got it in our minds that they're really much more difficult than they are, when in fact, it's pretty manageable. Uh, traffic well, on the yeah, but I mean, some people can't walk a true bubblegum at the same time, you know what I mean? So these roundabouts are just like throwing people right off. Right? So the, the, the amount of traffic comes out down that road, they put the roundabout there, there's going to be more access there than you shake a stick at. Because people are just going to be blowing through, they're not going to be paying attention. And simpler and cheaper solution is move whatever turn you ain't laying you can to the left five feet. I hadn't really thought of that, but that does make sense uh, as I try to visualize that intersection in my mind. Oh. But the reality is, you know, the most successful traffic calming measure in the modern world is the roundabout. You know, and it works oh, yes, everywhere. Yep. We just don't mm-hmm. seem to have the uh, the ability to figure them out. Like, I i don't know, and this is not about being a world traveler, but I've been places where there's like nine, ten lanes in the roundabouts, and people manage it. 
you know? Oh, yeah, best client. Yeah, it's it's curious. I hadn't really given your suggestion any thought, but that does make sense to me because the reason I can't see anything coming, you know, especially if we're talking about someone driving a half ton, right? And they're yeah. wanting to make the left down, uh, major, down Major's Path, and I want to make the left in the airport. I, I legitimately cannot see anything, probably about eight or ten car lengths of inability to see anything based yep. on the angle. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah, exactly. And if you're going up Portugal, make the turn into Major's Path, or uh, sorry, into Airport Heights, that road is on a bend, and they got a bunch of trees up across the middle, middle of it too, a bunch of bushes. So yeah, you're right. Those blocks are real. Yeah, no, it's I mean, a terrible I, spot. Yeah, I mean, if this council can figure out something simple as that, uh, I'll step down. I'll scout every one of them. Well, and this is, not defending, this is not defending the councillors, but we've got people that do exactly this kind of stuff on behalf of the city. Maybe they're the ones who should be able to figure it out to the extent with your, well, with your suggestion. But I get where you're coming don't from. Take, uh, don't take rocket science realize you can't see nothing coming. Right? Yeah, no, you can't. You can't see anything. No, it's, and a simpler solution. Move it over to left and probably reduce speeds or post signs for photo radar, and then that slow down, people. Right. I appreciate your time. Good suggestion, Alan. Interesting. Perfect. Okay. Thanks. Have a great day, Patty. Merry Christmas. And the very same to you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Mary, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. I'm a first-time caller, but I'm looking for some information that you might be able to provide. Okay. Can you tell me, in the case of an insurance accident where one party is 100% liable, there's an injury involved, can the insurance adjuster represent both parties who are insured with the same company? Do you understand my question? I think I do. So you're asking me if an adjuster can represent both parties? Yes. Okay. So, yes. So it used to be that insurance adjusters were standalone entities. They were adjusting companies. But now most of the big insurance companies have their in-house adjusters. So even if it's the same individual as a field adjuster versus the senior internal adjuster, which where, this is where all these things land anyway. The final decision is made by someone in a, a, super, a supervisory role. So I understand the concern, but I think, like, if I'm insured by who? Anthony's or Johnson's, which Johnson even no longer. I think they're Bel Air now. No, they're all. That's right, Bel Air or something. Yeah, yeah. Bel Air Direct. I'm pretty sure that was uh, who they sold to. They're going to have adjusters. Even if you had, say, you're concerned with one adjuster, if both parties are insured by Bel Air Direct, in essence, you're getting the same office doing the adjusting anyway. Right. Okay. So whether or not that is acceptable or. you know whether or not that's the right thing to do i don't know but the buddies of mine in the insurance business that listen to this show they generally speaking get back to me very quickly on insurance related matters so if they do i'll just give the answer that they provide me out loud on the show because i know just a little tiny bit about the uh, world of insurance adjusting that's what my father did for a living for the vast majority of his professional career. But now his company would be no more because the big insurance companies, they got their own adjusters. So if both parties are covered by Bel Air Direct, in essence, you're getting the same office evaluating the claim. Right. But let me see if I can get you a better answer than that, Mary. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll listen. Uh, I appreciate your time. Stay tuned. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is one of those things, you know. I don't know the specifics of... 
when dad's company was doing it whether or not so for instance someone was covered by stairs and someone was covered by wedgwoods and they would possibly you know because he worked for all the companies if they both came to him looking for an adjuster again his field adjusters would bring back their evaluations and the documentation and the pictures to make a final evaluation of the claim as an adjuster to put it forward to the actual insurance provider so Mary asks a very good question there but I think it does get further complicated with the big companies having their own adjusters on staff. But if Steve or Bill or any of the boys that I know in the insurance business, if you heard Mary's question, provide me with your insight from your company, please. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Mark Clench. You're on the air. Doing, Betty? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, riding the bike. Yeah. I can hear the wind. My subject line says bike riding across province. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? On the last day of my trip uh, across the province, it started in uh, Wabash on the 4th of October. And uh, yeah, I'm riding for charity, actually. It's called Candid. And uh, they get bikes and musical instruments for kids. It's kind of like a mental health thing. It's, just because the wind is kind of just because of the wind what's the name of the charity one more time uh can canned aid i'm gonna find a stop here now okay canned aid uh, okay yeah and uh, there's uh there's a facebook group that people can go on if you want to check it out it's called the uh, big land to newfoundland by bicycle and there you find like the links to the donation page and all that we're, uh, we're up to around nine thousand dollars now and uh, sort of trying to reach 10,000 is my goal. If we can surpass that, that'd be great too. But if anybody's willing to uh, contribute whatever, uh, whatever they can, I really appreciate it. So why this charity? Uh, you know, it's sort of something that aligns with my values, I guess. Uh, I've always been into biking and, uh, you know, and uh, music, same thing. And... You know, I just felt like it was a good way to give back. I kind of had a, you know, a little bit of a hard time mental health-wise during the, the pandemic. And those two things were uh, kind of something that got me through it. So, you know, just trying to give back yeah, that way, I guess. Good on you. How's the biking experience been? It's been really cool. Uh, met so many beautiful people along the way. It's like, it's, it's amazing, man. Uh, just, yeah, I made a lot of... A lot of new friends and, and seeing a lot of cool things. And, yeah, it's been over, uh, well, over two months now that I've been on the road. So it was kind of hard to sum it all up, you know, in one, uh, in one go. But what have you been doing for lodging? Are, are, are you tenting or are you staying in hotels? What's how you doing that? A little bit of both. Okay. Actually, uh, but uh, honestly, ever since uh, say about Mary's Harbor in Labrador. I haven't had to spend too many nights in a tent. There's been a lot of very generous people, you know, they'll, they'll offer me a spot to stay, you know, sometimes I have to pay for a spot myself, but there's a good many times where most people just put me up for free for the night, and I'd say maybe a half a dozen times I've had to camp since I got on the island. That's not bad in the course of a couple of months. Can you spell the charity for me so I can have a look at it? Uh, yeah, um, C-A-N apostrophe D A-I-D So it's like Canned aid. It's like a you know aid in a can kind of thing. I, I believe they started out um, sending canning water and sending it to disaster zones. Okay. That's, but then they branched out from there and they do all sorts of stuff. 
the charity's based out of the state, but you know they help out kids, and a kid is a kid no matter where they are in the world. Right? Yeah, I just, I'm Googling up so I can have a little look at it during the newscast. Well, listen, safe travels, and good on you for doing this, Mark. So on the heels of arriving, uh, so I, sp- I assume you're uh, landing in St. John's for the end destination. I'm actually not. No, I'm going to Princeton, Bonnet Bay. That's, okay. Uh, that's, home. that's home for me, and uh, honestly, that's far enough. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's the East Coast. It's uh, far enough for me. It sounds far enough to good. me. I'll have to consider it, consider it uh, crossing the province at this point. If anybody wants to nitpick it, they can do it themselves. Oh, no, I'm not nitpicking it. I think it's great what you're no, doing, no, man. No. Good on you. Wherever yeah, you're going to yeah, stop, good for you. Um, no, it's just, you know, I, I left from Wabush, and Wabush, I grew up in Wabush, so that's kind of like home to me, and Princeton is, is home to me as well. So, it's, you know, it's kind of it's fitting. Right? So Start at home and end at home. I get it. So do you want people to go to the Candate website, or do you have something set up for yourself to follow your progress and maybe make a donation? Uh, the best way that you could do it, if anybody's got Facebook, and even if you don't, I think you can still kind of get on there and see the, the page, but it's called Big Land to Newfoundland by Bicycle, and there's there's a group started, and you'll find the link to the donation page there because the, the donation link is kind of like a you know a long string, of, like a URL. It's kind of hard to, you know, it'd be hard to type that out. So. Yeah, I get it. Fair enough. Facebook would be the best way to, uh, and then you'll get the link to like the specific charity for me. If, if you just go to the Candate website, that'll just go to their organization in general. But if you if you want to contribute to what I'm doing, then you're probably better off going to the Facebook page. But either way, you know. I think it's great. Listen, enjoy the rest of your ride. Get there safe, and thanks for making time for the show, Mark. Thanks, Freddie. Appreciate it. You're welcome, sir. Take care. You too. All right. Bye bye. That's a good, long bike ride. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll talk about the cost of living in Labrador. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Kelly, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. No problem. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the cost of uh, living in Labrador. My son was uh, finished his education degree in August and got hired as a teacher down in uh, Labrador. And the reality is that the cost of his rent, his groceries, you know, his car payment, his insurance, at the end of the day, he has very little left to live on. And um, as his parents, we have to kind of help him out a little bit. So it gets a little bit discouraging, you know, as a young person just finishing up their degree and, um, you know, having a career job and really realizing then at the end of the day, he doesn't have a lot left to live on. I, when I see people sending pictures of uh, price tags on grocery items and otherwise coming from Labrador, I just shake my head. I mean, it is truly extraordinary. I apologize, Kelly. What did you say your son is doing? He's, he's a teacher. He he's got a hired, teacher. Uh, okay. Down. Yeah, yeah. So he got hired in August, and, and we drove him down in September. And, you know, we packed two car loads, an SUV and a car, with groceries to take down there. But still, at the end of the day, you know, he said, Mom, like, um, this is the first time um, that I'm really struggling because he worked in the food industry um, as a waiter. And he was, you know, making more money than what he is, you know, making as a, you know, as a teacher. Nothing quite like some cash gratuities. 
Right. Exactly. And I mean, if you're a teacher yeah. and don't have much left over at the end of the month, I mean, that speaks volumes because teachers are relatively well paid, I would suggest. So, yeah. you know, do you have, can yeah. you share some like budgetary stuff? Like, for instance, I know around about what teachers make uh, being married to one. So at the end of the month, what does he have and what's he doing without or having to go without? I think he's learning to budget, which is not a bad thing. Nope. You know, I think, you know, I think he's, he's learning that. I mean, his rent is, you know, $1,500 a month. Um, you know, he, he likes to, he loves cereal. And we went to the grocery store and looked at a box of cereal. It was $18, you know, oh for a big God. box of cereal. So, you know, and he, he doesn't take part in any of the, you know, he's not a smoker or a drinker, that sort of thing. So, you know, he's just he's just making ends meet. And, you know, we have helped him out. And the travel then to, you know, come home for Christmas, you know, that added expense of the, you know, uh, airline ticket, that sort of thing, um, you know, that falls on us. And he, you know, in his mind, he's, his mom is discouraging because, um, you know, he didn't think he would, you know, be in this situation. You know what I mean? So... He, that we would have to help him out in this way. You know, he got his career now and he 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 doesn't want to rely on us. And the reality reality is is that we've had to uh, help him out along in the last four months. So I just wanted to make those comments. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I'm glad you did. So did he specifically choose to go to Labrador or was that where his one opportunity was? Oh, well, he could have stayed, you know, on, on the Avalon and he could have subbed. But uh, he wanted to, you know, get in there and um, get his permanency. And uh, so that's what he did. And he loves what he's doing. And he, and he loves it down there, which is great. Um, but that was his choice to go down there. And uh, but, you know, the, the reality is, is that it's really, really tight for him. And for many, you know, one thing when we talk about trying to incentivize teachers to work in more rural parts of the province, especially in Labrador, one of the initial concerns they have is regardless if it's $1,500 a month for an apartment, some people can't even find a job, find an apartment or a place to live in Labrador. And consequently, what happens? They just at the very 11th hour say, well, I can't find a place, so I can't go. And that, what and does that, that mean? It means that we have teachers not in classrooms when school opens in September. You are so right. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, not a great so set of he, circumstances. He, he had parents that could help him out, which was great. But you know what? Some kids don't have that, you know, opportunity, uh, you know, where their parents can help them out. They're struggling to make, make ends meet themselves. So I just think that, yeah, there there got to be other ways or other things that we can do uh, for, you know, our young kids that are coming out and are really struggling when they want to, you know, want to work in their career. And, you know, Labrador needs teachers, so... They anyway, need teachers badly. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. making time for the program this morning. Does he have a focus area as a teacher? Like, is he a math teacher or whatever the case may be? English. English, okay. Yeah, English and social studies. Well, yeah. hopefully he's doing okay and you get a chance to see him over the Christmas holidays. And thanks for making time for the show. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Kelly. Bye. All right, bye-bye. And before we squeeze the caller up against the break, you know, when, uh, I think his name was Alan, called about the dangerous intersections, he's not wrong. That one up at Majors Path, Portrait Cove Road, Airport Heights, terrible spot. And his suggestion was to move the turning lanes five feet in one direction so that you're not looking at the driver's door, you're looking at the passenger or consequently can see cars coming. The other suggestion that was made, and because we've also made reference to people standing on the median right here at Kelsey Drive. 
the way it works there, if you've never been in that area, is if I want to turn left and go up Kelsey into that shopping zone, I can only do it when the arrow is green right it does not allow me to turn left if and when that arrow goes yellow and then red because only ongoing traffic going straight up and down in either direction is allowed to go so maybe that's an idea at majors path as well as opposed to putting in a roundabout or even reconfiguring the road itself is simply make that the rule just like it is at hebron wayne and kelsey drive i can only go left turn left when there's an arrow flashing left and when that stops and the traffic is going up and down north and south on Kmart road there is no turning allowed so that's another possible idea versus what would be the expense of reconfiguration and or the installation of a roundabout. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's say good morning to one of the Tent City for Change advocates. That's Laurel Huguet uh, on line number two. Laurel, you're on the air. Hi, Daddy. Hi. Is it Huguet or Huguet? Huguet. Huguet. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What's on your mind? Well, um, um, Tensity for Change and some of the advocates um, uh, just put out a press release just chatting about what happened on Friday. Uh, basically, um, we worked with the city to come up with a plan for waste disposal. Um, so uh, one of the companies has been coming regularly, regularly to help us keep the site clean. It's looking great these days. Unfortunately, uh, what came with the, um, with the garbage and... Um, Friday was about 12 police. Um, they started touring the grounds after assuring us that they wouldn't be taking any tents or um, taking any of the resident protesters' survival gear. Um, but an hour later, they started touring the grounds and um, telling the property manager which tents that they should be taking and disposing of. So we've got a lot of questions and concerns. Um, uh, we immediately let the media know and we let um, other community advocates know and folks started showing up once the media came. Uh, thanks to you guys, the police did back down. Um, but 12 police officers um, for about an hour and a half, two hours. Like, can you imagine what kind of tax dollars are going into surveilling and um, harassing resident protesters rather than giving them what they want and what they're asking for, which is safe and affordable housing for all? Do we know what provoked the police presence? Was the property management company asking for the police to be there for the safety of their workers, or do we know exactly why they were there? That's what we're asking as well. Um, even if there was some concerns about the safety of the workers, they've been coming for a week, a week and a half without police presence, and, and we've all been working together really, really okay. At one point, police said that someone threw something at a, uh, a vehicle. Um, it certainly wasn't one of the resident protesters, and um, whoever it was, did they really require 12 officers? Um, so, yeah, we have concerns, we have questions, and, um, yeah, we'd like to have some answers. So was there any negative interaction between the police and the folks living in this tent encampment, or are you saying that you think it's simply intimidating to have 12 uniformed officers on site? Certainly, like, intimidation was uh, an outcome of that. Uh, the resident protesters stayed in tents, and it was largely the advocates who came out to try and, like, protect resident protesters. We all know that uh, there's a long history of police harassing um, and sometimes brutalizing marginalized populations. Um, so advocates, housed advocates with a bit more privilege stepped in. 
Um, there were interactions like one of the officers was waving a finger in someone's face, accusing somebody else of obstructing them. Um, one officer refused to provide their badge number, which was quite upsetting. And again, one of these advocates was trailing the officers around, letting them know that um, the gear and the tents that they were um, marking and noting for disposal were absolutely used, absolutely essential to survival, um, and they were being ignored and dismissed. And so the 35-year-old that was arrested, the allegation there is that he threw a glass bottle at the police cruiser and broke out a window. Is that not what happened? Oh, we don't know. Uh, we had advocates on site um, that whole day, and that was not a thing that we saw. And again, like, even if that was something that happened, what about that incident required 12 officers to respond to? Certainly none of our protesters were arrested following that. It certainly seems like a significant number, unless they were reacting to something as opposed to just being there as a result of wanting to, you know, whether or not the property management company thought they'd like a police presence. But, I mean, a cruiser with two police may have been all that's required, if that indeed is the case. So that's a fair question. That's the one I'd need an answer to right away is, you know, what mm-hmm. instigated it? Or was it simply something that was orders inside the RNC's leadership? I don't know, but I, I can mm-hmm. find out. Uh, Laurel, anything else you want to say this morning? Um, you know, there's some really wonderful people at Ten City. They're advocating for safe, affordable housing for all. I'm a housed person, but I'm really grateful for those protesters because they're making St. John's a more affordable city for all of us. So I'm appreciative of them, and I'm appreciative of you, uh, Patty. Please find that out for us. We're really curious. Yeah, I'll get an answer to that question. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many people remain living in these tents? Oh, it changes all the time. Some folks go into shelters, some folks get into housing, but there's always people getting kicked out, people being harassed by their landlords. Um, You can house everyone who stayed there last night, which is about five or six people, and by tomorrow there will be another five or six people uh, staying in Tent City. We have a long-term cost-of-living crisis. Oh, without question. We have an affordability issue, an accessibility issue. Everything in the ability world is part of this housing conversation right across the country. It's really alarming. Uh, I appreciate the time, Laurel. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going here. Line number four. Anne, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, I just called in to your program to get some information about a... um, an author, a local author who published a book. I heard him about a month ago, and I've been meaning to call in ever since. And uh, I was advised I should call just stand there and have a chat with you. I just told him I'm living in Ontario, from Newfoundland, of course, and I really enjoy your show. I turn it on every morning at 7.30 our time, and I listen to it. I appreciate and it. I, I do. It was a great show, and you, you were so kind to people. So just wanted to say Merry Christmas to you. And, of course, to all my friends and family back in Newfoundland. Where are you from originally here? I'm from the Southern Shore. Okay, very good. What community? Uh, well, I'm living, I was living in Torscove last, but I'm from Whitworth Bay. Okay. Well, so you got the information you needed about the book? I did. It was a, a book by Nick Cross, uh, Cranford. Oh, yeah, the, so Cran- the Word Find. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard that on about a month ago. Now, your, your producer said he thinks it was less than that, but um, he must have been on twice, because I'm sure I heard it a month ago, too. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. So that new Flan word find apparently is selling like hotcakes. So I guess you just go through Flan Press and I'll be able to search out. Yes, hopefully I can get a copy of it mailed to me. Uh, I appreciate the time, Anne, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. 
Okay, thank you very much. You're you welcome. Too. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Uh, Dave, where to? What do you want me to do? I forgot the order that you described. Line number three, sure. Line three, William, you're on the air. Hi, William. Hey. Hi, how are you doing, pal? Okay, how about you? Not bad. Merry Christmas to you and your family and everybody else that is listening to the program. Same to you. Yeah, I'm just calling because I've heard a bit of conversation about the intersections in, that, in the town and I'm just wondering, like, could we uh, maybe even um, slow down some of the accidents with not having, because I, I know, like, the bottom of Allendale Road and the, I call it Confederation Hill. Like, is there a reason why we only have maybe just just a, a, a left-hand turn arrow like we have at the bottom of Thorburn and Columbus Drive? You could, hundred percent. Same thing with when I leave work here, I'll make a left on Kelsey. I can only go when the light, when the arrow is point, flashing, Ab- and as absolutely. soon as that stops, I'm not allowed to turn. Absolutely, and I'm thinking like we're talking about roundabouts and uh, changing environments where it relates to widening. But if if we just had just maybe so many other places like the dangerous intersections, because I know like I live in the east end of town. If I'm going west. And I get to the bottom of Confederation Hill to say turn down Allendale. I get people behind me like blowing the horn and they're yeah. giving me the finger because I don't go, but I can't see anything. Yeah, that's a wicked one. I really do not like going through that intersection. I have my foot no. hovering over the brake every single time. Absolutely, and it's such a scary environment. And I've been driving for like almost 30 years, and not wood. I've never had an accident. But I just feel like you get in these environments where it's, it's just such an uncomfortable feeling, and there's a lot of them around town. Like if you come up Allendale to go west, there's an arrow. If, you, if the arrow is not flashing, you can't go. Right. But why can't we do the same thing on the other way, where if you're coming east to go west, and if there's no arrow, because I, that is one of the most dangerous ones, right there by the bottom of the African Culture Center. If you're going west, you cannot see up Allendale on the parkway. The short answer to your question is there's no reason why that cannot be the solution because it 100% does work. I mean, it might be frustrating when you're the left-hand turn or trying to go up Kelsey that you only had that limited opportunity when the arrow was flashing. But when I sit back and think about it, I'm just glad that I don't have to try to do that. Peer out around as much as I can to see if I can see something coming. Absolutely, Mr. Daly. I mean, like last year, I was up in Ontario last year with my brother, and we drove around Ontario, and it's, it's amazing how their driving habits up there are so different from here. Like, they know what a merge lane means, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's funny. I mean, I came in the highway last night from Carbonero because the wife wanted to go out and do a bit of shopping, and we were driving in, and I'm getting into a lane, and I'm doing like, okay, I had the uh, the car set on like, I'm probably at 95, because it was dark, and I wanted to keep an eye on the roads, and people are pulling out, and they're whipping in front of you, and they're whipping around you, and they're blowing their horns. I'm thinking like, guys, you know something? Leave 10 minutes earlier if you're that busy. And they're not. They're just reckless and aggressive, and there's just no need of it. And yeah. I'm going to drive back the uh, Outer Ring Road on my way home for lunch, and I'm going to see the exact same thing just like I do every single day. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure you see it every morning. 100%. Right. I appreciate the time. You've had the last word, William. 
Well, sir, thank you very much, and you have yourself a good Christmas, and maybe I'll speak to you again in the new year. I look forward to it. Thanks for this. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Same to you, William. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Good show today to kick off the weekend. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.